Hi, folks. My name's Avril Earls. I'm the executive editor over at History Buffs Podcast. And I'm excited to join you today to tell you, well, just a story. So apparently, on November 22nd, 1941, The New Yorker published a pretty weird advertisement. All throughout the issue, there were these little teasers, and they all said, warning. On these teasers, there were two die, a black and a white die, and each die had a couple of numbers on it. The side facing us was a 12. On the black die, there was a 0, a 5, and a 7. So these teasers, they all sent you to this other main advertisement on page 86. And that's where things get even weirder, because the warning is now bolstered by a picture of some people playing this dice game, using those die from the first teaser ads, in a bomb shelter, an air raid shelter, while an air raid is going on around them. The ad says, We hope you'll never have to spend a long winter's night in an air raid shelter. But we were just thinking. It's only common sense to be prepared. If you're not too busy between now and Christmas, why not sit down and plan a list of the things you'll want to have on hand? And beneath this ad, there is an image, a two-headed eagle wearing a crown with with a double X on it. So... In the days after December 7th, 1941, when the attacks on Pearl Harbor occurred, the FBI launched an investigation on these very, very suspicious advertisements. Because for all intents and purposes, those teasers seem to have a 12 and a 7 on them, indicating a particular day in which one should be warned of. And then, of course, the content of the ad itself, this warning about an air raid coming and being prepared, was very troubling. And as the FBI launched this investigation, uh, supposedly they turned out that the Monarch Publishing Co. did not exist. It was not a real company. And supposedly the man who brought these print plates to the New Yorker office died a horrible, violent death weeks after the attack. So some more clever conspiracy theorists think that this FBI investigation is all just a hoax. It's a cover-up. A cover-up because, in fact, the U.S. government knew about this attack all along, and they were subtly trying to subliminally, I guess, warn the American public about a coming attack. Others think that, in fact, this ad was placed not by the U.S. government, but by the Nazis and the Japanese as a warning to those agents in Pearl Harbor to prepare themselves for the coming attack. And so this is one of those great mysteries of American conspiracy theory lore. But the question is, is it just a story? It doesn't. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This are telling you stories of the old. Girl. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And boy, are we asking for it this week. Okay, my dear listeners, I am so glad that you're all here. I've missed you greatly. And, you know, through our weeks together, I've started to feel pretty okay with myself. I've started to feel like 
I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like our show. And so this is not my natural state. I am usually a pretty melancholy, pessimistic little human. So I decided it was time to do some really stupid. (laughs) But before we get there... More on that later. We do want to welcome all of you back to the show. Um, Thank you everyone for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. We're getting close to 100. If you're the 100th review, you're going to get a prize. And not a no prize. A yes prize. A yes prize. Okay, so if you're the 100th review... Take a screen cap of that and mail it to us at justastorypod at gmail.com and we will send you a little yes prize. Something fantastic. It's all fantastic. And we do want to encourage all of you to reach out to us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod, where we share information about that week's episode and other fun topics and have weird, interesting conversations. So... Please join in on that fun. While you're on the interwebs, you can also go to our website. Yes, we have our own little corner of the internet. And we post all of the illustrations for each episode there and all of the sources where we have found the information to bring you all the background of all of these stories. And we also have links to our merchandise store. Where you can get fun shirts designed by Samantha. As well as links to our Patreon. Oh, Patreon's a lovely place where you can go and become a sustaining member of the Just a Story podcast army. We have an army now. Oh, good. We don't have an army. Don't worry. There will be no conscription. There might be conscription. But anyway, you can go to Patreon and you can select a level to pledge at a monthly recurring donation. And that keeps us in the books and learning things for the likes of you all, which is all we really want to do. At one level, you will be able to get the Just the Stories mini podcast episode things. Babysodes. And this week, we will be posting a separate World War II mystery conspiracy, maybe. Conspiracy, maybe, should be the title of this episode. But it's going to tie in a little bit. So you may want to check that out if you're if you like our World War II coverage and really who doesn't that's there for the taking. And we do want to thank two new patrons that we have: Patron Party, Amberina Mir and Anne Van Bunzel. Bunzel? We try. I tried. Bunzel. I'm guessing. I have no idea. Anne Van Bunzel. Most likely, maybe. Sorry, I love you. <laughs> we love you so much. And we will give you a V or W pronunciation, whichever you choose, if you'll let us know. And the final way we're going to instruct you all that you might be able to contact us if you feel the urge to do so is to contact us on the Urban Legend Hotline. And that n- phone number is 512-222-3375. And you can call and leave us a voicemail. I think you've got about three minutes. And if it cuts you off, just call back as many times as you need to to get your story told. Yeah, let us know your favorite urban legends, scary stories, things you grew up hearing. We want to know. Yes, or anything you've always been curious about but not wanted to ask. Like, are there really unicorns? (laughs) Are there really unicorns? They're narwhals. I know, and that's better. Back to the story at hand today. And today we are talking about a classic urban legend surrounding the day that will live in infamy that has lived in infamy continues to live in infamy 
that day would be December the 7th, 1941. The attack on Pearl Harbor. That's the one. So, on November 22nd, there was a strange advertisement in the New Yorker magazine, and it showed a group of people huddled in an air raid shelter playing a game. And under the headline, it said, Ajtung, warning, alert, exclamation point. And it also said, we hope you'll never have to spend a long winter's night in an air raid shelter. But we were just thinking, it's only common sense to be prepared. And if you're not too busy between now and Christmas, why not sit down and plan a list of the things you'll want to have on hand? And though it's no time, really, to be thinking of what's fashionable, we bet the most of your friends will remember to include those intriguing dice and chips which make Chicago's favorite game the Deadly Double. And throughout the issue, there are these other tiny ads. We need to process that text for a second. I'm sorry. I know. It's insane. It's insane. We're not just going to move on. That's not happening. Okay, so they're combining like doomsday prepping, the Christmas season, and being popular amongst your friends. Yeah, the most important things. And what one might do in an air raid shelter. You gotta do something. Why not play Chicago's favorite game? Or we could get on the baby train. Whatevs. Like, this feels like a baby train. It's both. You could do both. Strip deadly doubles. Gotta repopulate the earth. Fair enough. But the thing about this ad, because there were lots of ads that were hawking things for the coming... Apocalypse? I mean, war. Okay, sure. Same thing. As we know, World War II was going full steam ahead... Across the oceans, both ways. That's never good. And so, the thing about this ad that makes it different than all the other ads is that the dice in the ad had the numbers 12 and 7 on it. So, like December 7th? Like December 7th. And so, these dice are cubed. We are not playing Dungeons and Dragons. Tom Hanks would be very disappointed. Okay, so why? how do we get to number 12 on a... Six-sided die. Well, and that's what had everybody concerned about this. Oh, or seven. Yeah, or seven. Because seven's more than six. Yeah, I just did that math. Right. Everyone was like, why are these numbers on there? This is so random. No one had seen cubed die with these numbers like this, at least not in the mainstream. So, like, this is clearly suspicious. Yes. Somebody knew this was a warning. Right, because we got mention of air raid shelters. We've got mention of warning alert, etc. And this is published November 22nd. So before the attack, had to be foreknowledge. They're not making a sick joke after the fact. I'm sure eyebrows were raised. So one of the reasons we're kind of still talking about this, why this legend is still in the modern zeitgeist, is that on December 7th of 1989, in the Los Angeles Times, there was an article and... In it, we had Bell, who was a Navy pilot during World War II, and he recalled meeting a military intelligence officer who shared with him a story, quote, he probably shouldn't have. Oh, those are the best stories. This spy, (laughs) this secret agent man, told them that the clerk who'd accepted the ads had no recollection of who placed them, and neither the game that was offered in the double entendre copy, nor the companies whose signature was on the ad existed. So my friend had drawn a total blank, and it was still eating at him. 
he was convinced that someone, for reasons he couldn't fathom, had been instructed to convey information about the upcoming attacks in this manner. So later, whenever he got home from his duties, he went and looked it up, went and looked to try to find the ads. And he found them. The ads were real. The ads are real. The ads are real. And he said, I remember the assurance of the intelligence officer that there was no such company and no such game in the stores. And the ads took on a significance and a malevolence to me that was very real ever since. So so now that we know the ads are real, that that part's not just a story. My next question in, in my to bunk or debunk brain is, was the game real? Was he right? So on May... 1942, five months after Pearl Harbor, the Los Angeles Times published a column by Chapin Hall that tracked the maker of this game down, Roger Paul Craig, and asked him about the advertisements. The article says, two weeks later came Pearl Harbor, following which, for some inexplicable reason, a lot of people turned back to the out-of-date issue of the magazine, apparently obsessed with the idea that the advertisement contained a prophecy of the tragedy in the Pacific. Letters, calls, and telegrams and perfusions started coming into the office of the company and to the editors of the magazine, from would-be J. Edgar Hoover's and amateur G-men, demanding an explanation of what they described as a tip-off to all loyal Japs in the United States and its possession to make arrangements for protection from a surprise attack. Oh, wow. Okay, so this would be a huge conspiracy. It would be. And this is a a real game that this guy invented. It was not necessarily Chicago's most popular game. Wait, what? It's hard to debunk that, too. Slander. But it is a real game, and I will post images of it on the website and on social media. And it was even, the funny thing about this is that the story was kind of even debunked right after it appeared. But that didn't matter. It kept going. And then the creator of the game says, Just how such a message was supposed to reach all the sons of the rising sun through such a medium is difficult to understand. But the message did carry into every section of the country. And I promise you, said Mr. Craig, nothing travels as far and as fast as a grossly inaccurate and malicious rumor. Well, he's right. We've seen that time and time again. I think we've proved that a few times. Yes. As I was thinking of what would be involved, were that to be the method of contact for loyal Japanese in the country, it is insane to believe that an English language magazine, first of all, is going to be the primary medium. Is it? Well, like for diplomats, et cetera, et cetera. I I don't think it's that crazy. Because if they knew... Ahead of time, hey, we're going to publish this in the New Yorker. Read it every week. And it's also a really good magazine. It is a really good magazine. That's just true. But to think that all the Japanese people in the United States that were still loyal in any way to Japan. I mean, I guess you can tell them to. It's not conspicuous to buy the New Yorker wherever you are. Exactly. Unless you're in the Deep South. New Yorker magazine. Is that where you get your salsa? (laughs) So I guess it's not as crazy as I originally thought. Maybe. Okay, so the game is real. The message is not real. True. But nobody cares. No, you will still see this on YouTube videos and listicles. (laughs) Listicles? I like listicles. It is still circulating. So this is the only conspiracy theory about Pearl Harbor ever. The end, done. That was quick. 
Just kidding. And this is the part of the episode where I tell you why I'm an idiot. Because I looked at this and I was like, oh, cool. We can cover conspiracy theories. Let's do false flags. And then I remembered that the internet exists and people are going to come at us with righteous indignation for covering this topic. Because people feel so many feels about this. But actually, Heine people, you may find this interesting. So let's talk a little bit about what Pearl Harbor is and why it's significant. On December 7th, 1941, which was a Sunday, around 7.30 a.m. Honolulu time, the naval base near Honolulu was attacked by a Japanese force, which included six aircraft carriers and 23 supporting vessels that had come 3,000 miles from Japan to Hawaii under strict radio silence for the duration of their travel. What happened? Nothing good. The six carriers launched the first wave of around 181 planes, which included torpedo bombers, dive bombers, horizontal bombers, and fighters, at around 6 a.m. In the hours before dawn, U.S. Navy vessels spotted an unidentified submarine periscope at the entrance of Pearl Harbor. It was attacked and reported sunk by the USS Ward and a patrol plane. At 7 a.m., a radar operator alerted that he saw planes. He reported it to his superiors, but they dismissed it as an American group of planes that was returning to the base. Shortly before 8 a.m., they simultaneously began air and sea assaults on the military installations and ships and airfields. The primary target for the Japanese was eight U.S. battleships. During this first attack, at around 8.10 a.m., the USS Arizona was struck and exploded due to an armor-piercing round igniting the ship's powder magazines. And that is the ship that is memorialized. Correct. In Pearl Harbor. And 1,177 crewmen were killed, and that was about half the number of American casualties that day. All battleships were damaged to varying degrees within the first 30 minutes of the attack. There was a lull in the attack around 8.30. The USS Nevada had been damaged, but they started to try to put her out into open water in order to try and counter the attack. But a second wave of aircraft began bombing. This one was around 170 planes. The Nevada beached herself and stayed clear. The attack ended around 10 a.m. 21 American ships were sunk or damaged. 188 aircraft were lost. 159 aircraft were damaged. 2,403 Americans were killed. This included 68 civilians and a total of 1,178 civilian and military Americans were injured. The Japanese lost 29 planes and less than 10% of their force. The American aircraft carriers happened to be in San Diego or at sea, so none of those were damaged. The shoreside facilities were largely left intact, and only three ships were not raised and repaired. So I think it's pretty wide knowledge that Pearl Harbor was a surprise attack. They were completely taken by surprise, and that's why the damage to the U.S. forces was so extensive. Absolutely. And this is also an act that was carried out before anyone declared war on anyone. Right. The United States was not in a military fashion at all at war with Japan or with the Axis powers. No, because there were strong isolationist feelings in the country after World War One. They were like, uh, that was the war to end all wars, remember? And the rest of the world was like, yeah, no, but... 70 to 80% of people at the time did not want to go to war. However, there was a lot of international pressure 
obviously, from America's allies for them to come help. Please come help. Jesus Christ, please, would you please come help? And I think that most people involved in the military and probably most people at all levels of government knew on some level that this was imminent, that the U.S. would be involved. And the U.S. was economically involved. They were passing like embargoes against Japan, and they were pressuring them without a doubt. So this became, in the eyes of many people who felt strongly that we should not go to war, a little too convenient. It seemed just impossible that, one, America had been attacked, and two that, oh, now we suddenly have a reason to go to war. Yeah, people didn't think that Japan had woken the sleeping giant. They thought the giant was playing possum. So in 1948, Charles Beard, who was one of America's most famous historians, set out a conspiracy theory accusing President Roosevelt of conspiring to provoke the Japanese attack against Pearl Harbor to bring the United States into World War II. He claimed that the president had received intelligence that a Japanese strike in the Pacific was imminent and had kept this information from military commanders in Hawaii so the attack would succeed and thereby warrant America's entry into the war. So that just, you know, people were like, oh, he was such a good historian and then he went crazy because that's just silly. They were like, you're right. No, they were like, yes, someone finally said it. And so now... As it has morphed and changed over the years, as documents have been declassified and things have been debunked, etc., the major claims of the conspiracy theory surrounding the attack on Pearl Harbor are that FDR knew it was going to happen, like knew exactly what was going to happen and didn't care. Just didn't tell anybody. Didn't tell anybody. And then the other one is that FDR purposefully and willfully antagonized the Japanese to the point that they thought... The Americans were going to attack them if they didn't attack first. And then lastly, that FDR and Churchill conspired to get the United States into the war in Europe using the backdoor entry through Japan. Now, why did people think that there had to be a conspiracy for us to enter the war? Why did the U.S. need all of this theater? Because it's called the theater of war, Jacob. Uh Uh-huh. Sorry, it was no possum joke. I mean, obviously there's the public, but that doesn't always sway military leaders. So there was little pressing salient need for America to be involved in the European theater of war with Germany, which is where most people felt like FDR was most invested, sort of morally or you know, Britain was an incredibly close ally. They were very much picking on Britain. We, he wanted to get in there and help. But in this theory, Germany wasn't going to attack us on our soil. And we could not talk Congress into letting us go to war in Europe. But because of a thing called the tripartite pack, we could engage with the Japanese and go to war with Germany by default. Because they were allies? They signed the Tripartite Pact, which is also called the Berlin Pact, on September 27, 1940. And this was an alliance between Germany, Japan, and Italy. The Axis powers. And the treaty begins. The preamble, if you will, to this pact concludes with 
It is furthermore the desire of the three governments to extend cooperation to nations in other spheres of the world that are inclined to direct their efforts along lines similar to their own for the purposes of realizing the ultimate object, world peace. That's some spin. (laughs) They sound like beauty contestants, not the Axis powers. But the important part of the tripartite pact is Article 3, which states Japan, Germany, and Italy agree to cooperate in their efforts on aforesaid lines. They further undertake to assist one another with all political, economic, and military means if one of the contracting powers is attacked by a power at present not involved in the European war or in the Japanese-Chinese conflict. So this is where we get the idea that if we're at war with Japan, we're at war with Germany. But let's do a little semantic analysis. A little twisting. A little untwisting. Because what it actually says is that if any of the contracting powers, what are the contracting powers? The Axis powers. Those are the ones, are attacked by a power that they're not presently at war with. So, like, that leaves, like, the United States. That's kind of it. And, like, Jamaica. Yeah. And Jamaica's like, we're not going over them on. Then the others will come to their aid. So, if you're using Pearl Harbor as an excuse to get into a war with Germany, you're doing it backward. You are not attacking one of them so that you have to go to war with Germany. They are attacking you. And this pact says nothing about that. But if you were to be thinking conspiracy-wise, you could say, well, maybe originally we wanted to just go to war with Japan and, like, knock that side out. (laughs) I don't think there was any thinking that that was the case. Like, I think that there was going to be more support for the war in Europe just because it was a more familiar terrain and... I mean, they were allies. And I think that there was a kind of universal tacit acknowledgement that there was more support for the war in Europe than the U.S. entering the war in Japan. I mean, just look at the way that the war is depicted in fictional accounts now. I mean, you see so much more about the European theater of war than you do about the Pacific. No, that is true. And this conspiracy, even though I'm sure it was batted about throughout the 40s and was kind of put to paper in 48, is still around today oh absolutely so this backdoor entry theory is a linchpin for most people and the contractual assurance is just not there it's a big gamble too so one of the more widely known widely reviewed books proffering this theory that fdr was totes in on in this the book by robert stinnett called day of deceit He spent 17 years researching for this book. Committed. Yes. And there are pages and pages of footnotes. Oh, that means it's true. But none of them lead anywhere. That means it's rambling. (laughs) So I read a paper by Rear Admiral Richard E. Young, U.S. Navy, retired. And his paper is called A Deceitful Book. I see what you're doing there. I didn't say it was clever. I see it. I did it. He did it. Just because of that, I'm not going to make any rear admiral jokes. You're going to let him have the pun pun on that? I'm going to let him. Are you giving him a pun again? Yes. Yes. So I wanted to look at some of the major claims put forward by Stennett and some of the major you're a dickhead claims put forward by our rear admiral. 
So one of the key pieces of evidence in Day of Deceit is the McCullough memo. Ominous tones. This is the smoking gun. This is the one. And this is real. Yes. So Arthur McCullum was a higher up, kind of middle, middle management in the Navy. Forgive me for not knowing his rank. And he wrote a memo detailing eight key actions that could provoke the Japanese into attacking the United States. Okay, that gun's looking smoking. It is. Now, he did write it. But here's the very, very, very important question. Did FDR see it? Who read it? Stennett advances the claim that McCollum was a regular advisor to FDR and that he was personally in charge of putting together everything that FDR reviewed in regard to the war. Nah. No, not at all. There's an account in an oral history project that was taken down where McCollum was interviewed and he talks about remembering seeing the president one time. Like he walked by. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Did he walk by? Yeah. He rolled by. <gasps> <gasps> Antichrist. Too soon. <laughs> Antichrist. Too soon. But yeah, he's like talks about seeing him from afar. And then he talks about like getting to shake Admiral Nimitz's hand that one time. Which would be cool. No, it <laughs> would be. But if you're recalling that, you're not hanging out with Frankie. Right. He also mentions in his book, Stennett says that there's evidence in the president's secret routing logs that he saw it. And then he cites them. No. He cites them. He does put a footnote, but if you go to the footnote, it's not there. Cites it. It's not there. Cite. He talks about radio stuff on that footnote. Cite your sources. Cite your sources. That's an old mantra. We need to bring that back. And then there's this thing. There's this thing that Stennett does that maybe makes me more angry than anything going on between a bunch of old white men I don't understand that are not actually in places of power has ever made me. (laughs) So he takes a quote by Richmond Turner, who was an admiral, discussing war games that were to be conducted around Hawaii. So this is how the quote appears in Stennett's book. We were prepared to divert traffic. When we believed that war was imminent, we sent the traffic down via Torres Strait so that the track of the Japanese task force would be clear of any traffic. Oh, shit. I mean, that's it. That's that's another smoking gun. Yes. And if you Google Richmond Turner, you will find that quote all over the frickin Internet. Like real sites, real sites and not real sites. Of course. But like NPR. And this quote is everywhere. And what he has done has taken, he basically played Mad Libs with page 1942 of the Congressional Investigation into Pearl Harbor attack and just kind of pulled a couple of words from each sentence and mishmashed them together to make them say this, which is horrible. If you're doing research, not even an ellipsis, Jacob, not even an ellipsis, like to say that something's been taken out. If you're doing research and you do this, shame on you. Shame on you. I'm going to come rub your nose in it wherever you are. This is bad, 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 bad research. Why'd you hit me? <laughs> I didn't mean to. I was just talking with so much conviction. I'm sorry. I didn't do it. No, but I mean, he just, like, these are words. These are words he said. <laughs> so they're discussing, like, closing off a specific area between Japan and Hawaii to commercial traffic on the chance that there was any kind of military action in that area. 
because the tensions were high and they did think that there was a high possibility of some kind of meet and shoot. And they did not want civilian sea traffic to be caught in the middle of crossfire. So they closed this area for traffic and they didn't conduct their normal war games in the area because they didn't want to like look like they were shooting and they were aware that tensions were high but they certainly did not clear the way and roll out a red carpet for the oncoming slaughterers from japan well another huge part of these conspiracy theories is that they say that japan did break radio silence and that the radio signals were picked up by the United States. And remember, they were traveling for over a week. From the 26th of November to the 7th of December, yes. So if that was picked up two days beforehand, they would have had time to alert Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. Well, depending on the kind of traffic that's picked up, that's there's nothing more dangerous in the world than a little bit of knowledge. And if you know that there's a little bit of information, you're like, oh, well, they did some... There's some radio signals. Yes, but what did what could we use them for, first of all? And secondly, liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. The Japanese did not break radio silence. Right, there are no naval records of any transmissions. And Stennett also puts forward the claim that we would have been able to basically track them on their iPhones had we picked up this radio intelligence. Like, everyone in Washington was sitting there watching little poop doop. Like the Casablanca. Yeah. Yeah. And they were all sitting around in Washington, smoking their cigarettes and enjoying their martinis, watching these dots go toward Hawaii and just giggling like Dr. Strangelove. And I'm like, J-13. You sunk my battleship, bro. But this is not how that works. Because one radio operator or intelligence officer picks up any kind of outgoing radio traffic they just know it exists. They know it exists. They can sometimes intercept it and decode it, etc. But you can't triangulate a position without two different operators picking up the signal. You can't get a fix on a position. Because you need three points to triangulate something. That's just math. No captured Japanese intelligence from any point in history has ever corroborated the idea that they broke radio silence. Not one person, not one document, not one anything has ever said yes. And then we chit-chatted about how funny Mean Girls is the whole way there. And then we get to another gem. We get to the USS Lurleen. They're just naming the ships anything? <laughs> They're named after their mama or their girlfriend or whatever. There were lots of Lurleens in 1941. I'm sure of it. All right. So... Robert Tolan, who wrote a book about Pearl Harbor, which stays really true to fact until the last chapter and then goes deep conspiracy, claimed to have interviewed this guy who he calls Seaman Z. I'm holding back so many terrible jokes. Uh, Thank you. He was later found and pretty easily located. He was not a confidential informant, had not asked for his name to be withheld. His name is Robert Ogg, and he denies that he ever picked up any transmissions. However... Toland first and later Stennett cite that he is on this USS Lurleen just listening to chatter, just blasting away on the frequencies. This did not happen. This is a lie. Pure and simple. And then Stennett also claims that General Yamamoto broke silence while he was traveling with the fleet. Oh, no. Fun fact, he didn't travel with the fleet. Oh, no. (laughs) He was in Tokyo Bay on the flagship 
the whole time. Hey, I'm not great at geography, but that's not close to Pearl Harbor, right? No, it's 3,000 miles away from oh. Pearl Harbor. Oh it's, oh, it's in Japan. That's the one. Oh. And then Stennett gets into this really labyrinthine discussion of the timeline for code breaking. And when I first read this, I was like, this makes no sense to me. And then I went and read a 325-page document from the NSA. Hi, NSA. Thank you. Lovely research, you guys. And it started to make a little bit more sense to me. And I started to understand why it was so important. And I also started to understand that he had zero evidence for what he was saying. He claims that there's evidence that we broke the JN25 code, which I know sounds meaningless, but would be a huge fucking deal. (laughs) It's a huge fucking deal. We had not broken that until April of 42. There's no reason to believe we had. They were getting pieces. You don't break the code all at once. Not these codes. They're way too complicated. It's like a lock with six tumblers. You know, you might get the first one to pop, but you've still got to keep going until it comes completely open, and then you've still got to go through the process of translation. Yeah, go watch an imitation game, and you will get a great idea of how hard it is to break a code. So he he's swears that this one guy in, like, Oregon or something broke the code and made a note of it. Just a little side note. But in 17 years of research, that's what he's got. Let's let's also look at that. So we had not broken JN25. Would you like to know okay, everything okay, I know no. about code breaking? No. I'm going to tell you now. Can we do like a minute? No, we can't. It's a long story, but it's really good. Get your cloaks and daggers ready. We're going spy school. Dun, 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 dun. So here's another thing that keeps coming up. And I say keeps coming up because there were 10 formal investigations into the events preceding the attack on Pearl Harbor. 10. The last one was in 1999. Just keep beating it at horse. They, They did. They beat it for a long, long while. And this was one of their favorite clubs to use on said dead horse. This is a story of the wind's message angels bring it to the antichrist yes actually that's exactly what happened oh we're done so this information comes from a 2008 report by the nsa the u.s cryptologic history project and it's called west wind clear and it is over 325 pages of text and declassified documents so i'm going to label that legit as fuck hashtag legit as fuck (laughs) the claim admiral husband kimmel his name was husband and General Walter Short and others claimed that the, if they had known of the wind's message, they could have been ready for the Japanese. So this fueled the idea that those responsible for failing to relay important information or maliciously suppressing vital intelligence, either or, were directly responsible for the 2,403 deaths on December the 7th, 1941. Wait, so what's a wind's message? Okay, it's complicated, but come with me. We're going to spy school. The Secret Intelligence Services, or SIS, as I will be calling them from now on, intercepted a coded Japanese message. This was intended for diplomats, and it provided code words that would indicate that ties with an allied nation had been weakened, severed, or made very hostile. It was followed by another transmission, which came to be known as the Instructions Message which detailed how the diplomats should respond to hearing this message, the wind's message, and the code that was to be used on open frequencies. And so if they heard east wind rain, be the United States, north wind cloudy, be the Russians, Russians, and west wind clear, 
It'd be Churchill. Ah. Just Churchill. <laughs> More we've got left, boys. So the key phrases would be repeated in the middle and at the end of these broadcasts, which were Japanese language broadcast over open frequencies. So this is like a Manchurian candidate activation code word. So this would be a better way to get a message to everybody. Which is why I was struggling with the idea yeah. that the New Yorker did it. Yeah. So this all kicks off on November 5th of 1941. The message is intercepted in Washington State, and it's coded, this is the WINS message, OP-20G, sent to D.C. to be decrypted. There's a heading at the beginning, B-U-T-W-J, which indicated it was for a global audience. Messages that were coded for a global audience were generally more geared toward, like, diplomats, etc., and they were not generally apprised of top-secret strategic maneuvering. So they were like, this is just some basic diplomatic message. It's not that important. Right. We need to work on the... Low priority. And it was coded in JN-19 code, which was a royal pain in the ass to decrypt, by all accounts. So it was given low priority. It went in a basket. And somebody would get to it when they got to it. Fun fact. Oh, yes? The secret intelligence services figured out the machinations of the JN-16 code, which is a predecessor to the JN-19 code, after the Office of Naval Intelligence sent agents to conduct black bag jobs. I say what? A, a black bag job. So what would they do? They would break into homes, <laughs> private homes of Japanese diplomats, and break into their safes. And get their cipher books and cipher machines and keys and code books and all of those things. Photograph them. Put everything back just like it was. And skedaddle. Ooh, some secret spy shit. So, as the Japanese cycled through new versions of their code, we had this basic Rosetta Stone kind of thing from the JN-16 files. So we were able to keep up with a pretty good pace with most of the decoding. Because it was built on those systems, but with some changes. So when JN-19 was decoded, it was decoded in a single day by a man named Frank Rowlett. But just having the code doesn't mean you can just put it in the computer, which didn't exist yet, and nope. it pops out. So decryption of a standard JN-19 K10 message could take anywhere from half a day to five days. It was a manual code that was decrypted using keys which were changed daily, and then had another layer of auxiliary transposition cipher work to be completed after that. Not to mention translating from the Japanese kana to the Phoenician alphabet English language. So shockingly, you've got a bunch of like 20-year-old guys sitting around in an underground bunker decrypting code, and they have choices between the JN-19 code or the purple code, which uses a cipher machine i'm gonna do the purple codes today guys i just think i'm gonna focus on purple i'm just feeling like most important messages are gonna be purple like my aura is purple today dude this is not vietnam what the hell's wrong with you from november 1st to december 7th of 1941 66 percent of purple intercepts were translated whereas 16 percent of jn19 intercepts were decrypted so what happens when the wind stuff starts to come in so the WINS message and the instruction message were decoded by November 28th. And intelligence officers thought that the transmission of the WINS execute message would indicate that war or a threat of crisis for any country that was included would be in progress. Like they thought it was going to be a really good sign. Like that's the heads up for the diplomats. To get out of Dodge. 
specifically, they were supposed to destroy their code books and all their sensitive materials, et cetera, et cetera. So it looks like serious conflict is coming. If we get this message, we hear east wind rain, north wind cloudy, west wind clear, et cetera, et cetera. So knowing that we have this five minute warning, basically, freaking everybody with a radio starts listening for this message on this open Japanese frequency. Americans, British, Dutch, everybody. Everybody's listening to Japanese news programs. The Japanese did send an interesting message to diplomats on November 28th, which was decrypted the same day. Negotiations will be de facto ruptured. This is inevitable. It also instructed diplomats not to give the impression that negotiations would be broken off. That's ominous. Yes, and then on December 1st, we got another ominous message when Tokyo cabled two Washington diplomats and said, the date in my message, which was November 29th, the absolute deadline for negotiations, has come and gone, and the situation continues to be increasingly critical. Also ominous. So on the same day, FDR, Secretary Knox, Harry Stinson, George Marshall, and Harold Stark, not Howard Stark, which made me sad, and Secretary of State Hall, had a joint chiefs of staff meeting. They were like, this is not going well. Mm-mm. There seemed to be no chance of an agreement with Japan. Like, it, it just sucked. And Hull, in particular, said that a surprise attack might be part of a Japanese plan. And they were aware that the Japanese were sailing south. They had kind of, they heard that, you know, leaked radio traffic from Yamamoto as he got in his boat to sail south. Sa- Wait, as he sat in Tokyo Bay, and they kind of knew that something was brewing. Right, and so the idea that a surprise attack may occur was floating around, but most people thought they would attack the Philippines. Right, because it was so much closer. So later, in one of those many investigations, Henry Stinson was talking about General Short, who was one of the people in charge at Pearl Harbor, and he said he had been told the two essential facts. A war with Japan is threatening. Hostile action by Japan is possible at any moment. Given these two facts, both of which were stated without equivocation in the message of November 27th, the outpost commander should be on the alert to make his fight, to cluster his airplanes in such groups and positions that in an emergency they could not take the air for several hours, and to keep his anti-aircraft ammunition so stored that it could not be promptly and immediately available, and to use his best reconnaissance system, radar, only for a very small fraction of the day and night, in my opinion, betrayed a misconception of his real duty, which was almost beyond belief. So he's talking about a lot of the things people cite in this. They weren't prepared. The planes weren't set up right. The ammunition was stored away from the guns, like not easily accessible. And he's saying, no, Short's saying, no one told us this, but he's like, here's my communique from November 27th. I sent him this literal message. I cannot believe that he was not prepared. I told him, be prepared. I mean, it's pure hindsight that makes us question any of this, because I think in the actual lead up, the intel they had was impressive. And they did warn them generally. They did not warn them specifically. They did not send an engraved invitation that said, Around 7.30 on December 7th, we request the honor of your presence at a lively engagement with Japan, old boy. That didn't happen. Please RSVP. Have they replied yet? 
If this, like, yes or no? Just send. It's a it's pre-stamped envelope. Like, short didn't even reply to the RSVP. <laughs> Is he bringing a plus one? I don't even know. Chicken or fish? At this point, comm operators around the globe, even the FCC, who are listening for, you know, censorship reasons... We're listening for the WINS execute message. The execute message, again, is what's to come over open frequencies with the code words. There were two false alarms on December 5th, because, of course, there were. And there were so many rumors all around naval yards and intelligence agencies that, quote, WINS was in. Even George Marshall remembers hearing it. And the reason that this was kind of allowed to escalate to such a large-scale rumor was because it had to be verified by so many different people first of all had to be decoded and it was quickly rushed to japanese linguists who parsed it for a while and you know kind of see where the guys were coming from but in the end they're like yeah it mentions weather but it's not the right pattern it's not the right context we don't think this is it and at this point too you have to remember that so much listening is being done and so much coded intel is being generated during this first week of december that the average amount of teletype coming into sis goes from about six feet per day to over 230 feet per day. Oh, wow. They are really looking for this. On November 27th, another intercept is made discussing the hidden word message. And the key component of this message was that it was going to include the American word stop in its broadcast. And this was to serve as an important alert for all Japanese diplomats. And they would use the weather words as previously detailed. This was translated on December 2nd. Also on December 2nd, they picked up a transmission. Diplomats all around North and South America were instructed to destroy their sensitive material and get rid of their code machines and books, and then to send in the code word Haruna when they had completed these tasks. And they also instructed that this was not to be done until the last possible moment. Well, this seems like a huge break in intelligence. It is. In the first week of December alone, they picked up over 20 Japanese facilities wiring out the word Haruna, indicating that they had destroyed all of their sensitive materials. So that's not looking great. So in light of the destruction of the materials within the Japanese diplomatic communities, the wind's message started to seem less important because we were seeing the actions that were to be carried out after it was sent. Right, like there are red flags everywhere. Right, and they're, so they were supposed to get the wind's message so that they would know when to destroy their stuff, and they're already destroying their stuff, so do we really need to be listening for the wind's message, the wind's execute message? So people were like, maybe it's not top priority anymore, but people were definitely still listening for it. So on December 7th, the hidden word message was sent, and it was decoded and sent to the White House by 10 a.m. However, there was a translation error made. And it seemed like it was only involving Great Britain. And the exact phrasing of the decoded message was, relations with Great Britain were not in accordance with expectations. So that doesn't seem like the smoking gun. However, it went in the same folder as a big fat smoking gun. Like I'm talking about a gun sitting around smoking a cigar in its office with its feet on the desk. Like that kind of smoking gun. Don Draper gun. (laughs) Yes. And this is a 14 part message that was intercepted that was sent to the D.C. diplomats, which was to be delivered to the Secretary of State at around 1 p.m. on December 7th. So this was sent with the anticlimactic hidden word message to the White House and included in a 10 a.m. meeting between the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This 14-part message was the official notice from Japan that they would not be pursuing further negotiations with the United States. 
It was delivered around 2 p.m. What else is happening on December 7th? Uh, Well, at the time that it was delivered, that would be about 9 a.m. Honolulu time. And that was right in the middle of the attack on Pearl Harbor. So these two guys walk up and they're like, we have mail for you. He's like, no shit. That's exactly what I think he said. I don't have that in writing, but that is my gut feeling. And they were dismissed and kind of like shushed away. But interestingly, on December 7th, around 1.32 p.m. Honolulu time, an FCC operator listening to the Japanese broadcast detailing the attack on Pearl Harbor five hours earlier was startled at the midpoint of the episode when the wind's execute message came through in full, and it was repeated again at the end of the broadcast. Do you think it was a setup? I, like, there's no indication of that in this giant document I read. But I do have to say that I think it's odd. I mean, I think it's like a big fat, fuck you guys, to come in the middle of that. Right, this is after. And they're like, this is a thing you were looking for. Hey, Here you go. Hey, guys, in case you're wondering, we're not doing well with the U.S. right now, diplomatically speaking. Maybe you want to go, you know, not be there anymore in the middle of a broadcast about how they killed 2,400 people. It seems redundant, to say the least. And then another reason that I suspect that this had been compromised or was not seen as important, etc., is because they switched codes. They had been using... JN25 pretty sparingly, and this is when they went kind of in full to JN25. So the next day, FDR declared war on Japan, and then Italy and Germany declared war on the United States, and then we went and got our patriotism on, and... The rest is history. So the idea that FDR knew about Pearl Harbor specifically seems like just a story. Right, this extremely detailed information and all of the coded messages and the timeline, when you look at the details, show that there's no way they knew there was an attack on Pearl Harbor. Yes, they knew that a attack was probably going to happen. Shit was getting real. It was just a matter of time. But they didn't know where, and they didn't know when, and they definitely did not allow it to happen to start a war. This would be a massive conspiracy at every level of government. Every soldier involved, you know, in intelligence would have to kind of know about it. And no one said anything for so many years. And no, like, deathbed confessions, even. You would expect some death. Oh, I bet there happened. Like, crazy men or something. Like, they found out later they didn't fight in the war. Watch a little too much History Channel. Yeah. But the idea that a government would have some sort of false attack or allow some sort of attack to happen to incite a war while it sounds like a story while it sounds like a conspiracy theory it's happened and the most notable at this time is during world war Two. wait let me guess the nazis the nazis the nazis i love those uh, guys i hate those guys oh sorry got it wrong they made cows Super cows. Nazi cows. Nazi cows. They really did. Nazi cows are not in this episode. I'm out of here. On August 31st of 1939, a small group of Germans dressed in Polish uniforms and led by Alfred Nocox. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's how we say it. We're going for it. Seized the Gliwitz radio station, which was a radio station kind of on the border between Germany and Poland, and broadcast a short anti-German message 
in Polish. Smart to switch those languages up. So it turns out that these were not Polish radicals that were trying to defame the Nazi party or who Germany. Would, who would do that? I mean, no one would say anything bad about a Nazi. You're right. That's highly suspect. So, no cocks. Mm-hmm. In an affidavit submitted to the Nuremberg trials. I've heard of them. Stated that he was personally ordered me to simulate an attack on the radio station near Gliwitz, near the Polish border, and to make it appear that the attacking forces consisted of Poles. Heydrich said, quote, actual proof of these attacks of the Poles is needed for the foreign press, as well as for German propaganda purposes. They planted several bodies dressed as Polish saboteurs. Bullshit. Including a body of a 43-year-old German farmer who had been arrested the day before by Gestapo and killed with a lethal injection and then shot. He was left dead at the radio station to appear he was attacking it. They also included several prisoners from Dachau that were shot dead at the site. Are you shitting me? This did not happen. So in the transcript... This didn't happen. (laughs) Mueller stated that he had... 12 or 13 condemned criminals who were to be dressed in Polish uniforms and left dead on the ground at the scene of the incident to show that they had been killed while attacking. For this purpose, they were to be given fatal injections by a doctor employed by Heydrich. Then, they were also to be given gunshot wounds. After the assault, members of the press and other persons were to be taken to the spot on the incident, and a police report was subsequently to be prepared. They used the code word canned goods for the prisoners. Also, sometimes this is called the Glywitz incident, and sometimes it's called Operation Canned Goods. I'm calling bullshit. Where where do they get the uniforms? Why would they just have Polish military uniforms, like, laying around? I don't know if you know this, but you can make a uniform. <laughs> so they had, like, little German ladies sworn to secrecy, like, sewing up some uniforms? Well, so, also in the Nuremberg trials, Erwin von Lehausen stated that his division of the Abwehr, uh, that's a German secret intelligence agency, was given the task of providing Polish uniforms, oh equipment, and ID cards. He was told by Wilhelm Canaris that people from concentration camps had been disguised in order to attack the radio station. So that's where they got the uniforms. They got the uniforms from the Abwehr. And so this was all part of a bigger operation called Operation Himmler. I've heard of him. And it was a number of incidents intended to look like Polish aggression. And this was to support claims that Adolf Hitler and the Germans had been making in newspapers claiming that Poles were committing ethnic cleansing of the Germans. Where would he get an idea like that? Projecting some? What would Freud say? Okay, it's not a lie if we provide falsified evidence later. Genius. Well, they at least provided evidence that the Poles were attacking. You know, because they were, they had other incidences and fires and things like that to kind of build up the press, build up that press. This that's not press; that's propaganda. Well, it's no, state control. No, it is, but but press through international press was oh, reporting on it. Yes, like they, like you said, they said they were like, "You're to bring the press in, bring everybody in to see this, show them." We didn't go to all this trouble <laughs> for a freaking farmer to walk by and tell his cow about it no we need headlines and they got him i'm sure jesus okay so that happened so guess what happens literally the next day after the polls we have to invade poland clearly right the germans blitzkrieg they they invade poland the next day 
and Hitler cited these incidences as cause. But on August 22nd, so a little more than a week earlier, he had said, I will provide a propagandistic causus belli, a case of war. Its credibility doesn't matter. The victor will not be asked whether he told the truth. Oh my God, he made fake news. It's so diabolical. It is so unjust and yet so well-reasoned and logical that it makes me physically ill. No, it is. I mean, they are completely creating incidents, conspiring to start a war. Purely fabricated shit. And so even before this, the Nazis had no problem in inciting violence and manipulating public opinion with kind of fake incidents. So they have a history of this. This oh, is not okay. Right. Before World War II, there's a history. Mm-hmm. So on February 24th of 1933, going back. All right. Going back. Mm-hmm. The Nazis are not in power yet. Mm. Not in full power. The I poli- bet they fixed that. <laughs> the police raided communist headquarters and it was announced that they had discovered plans for a commie revolution. Not the commies know anything but that. But they didn't discover much, apparently, because you know nothing has ever come out about these subversive documents. Like, no actual documents were ever published or released. And Lord knows we collected some documents. But on February 27th, just a few days later, mm-hmm. the German parliament, the Reichstag, was burned down due to arson. The whole thing? Like, like Guy Fawkes burned down? <laughs> Guy Fawkes didn't burn anything down. Well, he was gonna. It was set ablaze. Okay. Fiery Parliament. This is not going to be taken lightly. Right. So using emergency constitutional powers, Adolf Hitler's cabinet issued a decree for the protection of German people. So they had already done this on February 4th, and the decree placed constraints on the press and authorized the police to ban political meetings and marches, effectively hindering electoral campaigning because they did not have full power yet. This was seen, or at least described to the public, as a temporary measure. Oh, good. Well, good to hear. Good to hear. But on February 27th, following the Reichstag fire, they issued the Reichstag fire decree, which suspended the right of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and other constitutional protections, including all restraints on police investigation. And this became a much more dramatic and permanent suspension of civil rights. So there's like an immediate benefit. And they get something immediately. So this is how they legally declare a dictatorship, basically. Almost. Almost. This is the setup. So Hitler and the Nazis did blame the, the German Communist Party for the fire. And they claimed they were trying to overthrow the state. How dare they? They stated that Marinus van der Lubbe, a young Dutch council communist, had been caught at the scene of the fire and was arrested for the crime. He was an unemployed bricklayer who had recently come to Germany. And, then and decided to take it over? To th- overthrow the government. Oh, good. Immigrants. And so he and several others were put on trial. And it's not Nazi Germany yet. Not fully. And so the judges kind of know they have to do something. And they, they, they smell the suspicion. Okay, so the judges that are in power who are presiding over this trial are not part of Hitler's regime but they are being presented with this highly politicized trial that they're expected to rule on one way or another, and they know that they have to give 
Hitler and his cronies something. And so they do find him guilty. Of what? Of arson. Not high treason? No. Interesting. So they may smell bullshit, is what you're saying. They may have. They may have. And so Hitler wasn't going to have that. And he made, by retrospective law, arson a capital crime. And he was sentenced to death and executed, wait, by beheading, wait, Uh, uh, uh. with an axe. Our our Dutch guy? Yep. Yes. The little Dutch boy? Hitler chopped the little Dutch boy's head off with an axe? He was a commie trying to overthrow the Nazis. Arson is a capital of... I don't like this place. So the Reichstag fire decree permitted the regime to arrest and incarcerate political opponents without any charges, basically dissolved political organizations, suppressed publications, and through this, through all the propaganda and press that was being created, and by suppressing all the other press, the Germans felt that Hitler had saved them from those Bolsheviks. Oh, honey. Now, he went on to use this power that he gained to eventually, with even more trickery, such as, like, not allowing everybody to vote, to pass the Enabling Act in 1933, uh, officially called the Law to Remedy the Distress of the People and the Empire. That sounds nice. And this is what gives the Nazis the legal dictatorial power. That doesn't sound nice at all. And we all know how that went. (laughs) So the Nazis had no problem with creating false events to preempt taking over the country or to preempt war. Yeah, because like the whole like bombing Poland thing, that was kind of a big deal in the scope of, you know, world history. Right. It, you know, started World War II. This makes me like just feel so gross. Well, I hope you would think that. I hope you know that like, this is a great idea. I think what makes me feel icky about it is it's so effective. Of course it's effective. And so in Manchuria, on September 18th they had of candidates. 1931, not Manchurian candidates. Okay. We're not going into that can of worms. We're opening enough bags of worms in this episode. Worms come in bags. It's more economical. So on September 18th of 1931, an explosion destroyed a section of railway track near the city of Mukden. Now, the Japanese who owned the railway blamed Chinese nationalists for the incident and used the opportunity to retaliate, and they invaded Manchuria. So was it like an accidental explosion, and they just blamed it on the Chinese, or was it like the Chinese actually did it, and they made it seem worse than it was? Like, what was the spin? So the spin was that the Chinese were doing it, okay, and that they needed to go in and help free Manchuria, and they set up kind of this puppet government there. But in reality, the Japanese had actually planted the explosions. Okay, that's a nut, that's a bridge too far, if you will forgive my pun intentional joke there. So they, the Japanese actually did it themselves and then blamed the Chinese? This is... Yep. Okay, I'm seeing a pattern I don't like. And so like I said, they, they set up this puppet government. It was a very resource-rich area. It was very strategic to have them under their thumb. And so this is the beginning of the 15-year war. The the conflict, as it's called, in the tripartite pack. Right. Which, you know, lasts from 1931 through 1945. It was a Japanese-instigated... Interestingly, with all of these incidents, there are always going to be apologists and revisionists that try to claim that even with 
very hard evidence that it's not exactly what happened. Even though you've got people like in the Glywitz incident, literal officers saying, I did this. I'm going to go in here and play devil's advocate for just one hot second and say that they were, you know, the Soviets were notorious for getting really detailed and complete confessions. They're good at that. They were very good at that. And that may have had some bearing on it. If they I mean, they didn't gain anything from that. Oh, sure they did. Oh, they had plenty more to go on. <laughs> true, more. true. Okay, fine. Fine. Yes, once you find a cow and an Auschwitz, etc., I'm sure that this looks like small potatoes. So Emperor Akiato has weighed in on this history. And in 2015, a year marking the 70th anniversary of Japan's World War II surrender, he used his New Year's message to urge Japan's citizens to learn from history, which is kind of what we always talk about. He specifically referred to the Mukden incident of 1931 as the start of the war, which was a not-so-veiled swipe at revisionists who tried to diminish Japan's responsibility for the hostilities that precipitated an Asian inferno. Which is one of my favorite movies. I thought it was a disco song. It's a disco musical. Yes. And in the message he said, I think it is most important for us to take this opportunity to study and learn from the history of this war, starting with the Manchurian incident of 1931, as we consider the future direction of our country. So the interesting thing about all this, especially the things that came up during the Nuremberg trials, is this legal concept of conspiracy. It gained political relevance, especially when applied to the Nazis. Because they were, you know, conspiring to do a lot of really nasty things. And we had to account for that somehow. There had to be a way to say, well, you were in on it. You may not have done it, but you were in on it. Right. Nuremberg marked the first application of the conspiracy concept to crimes of the state and of political organizations. The Charter of the International Military Tribunal authorized prosecution of individuals for, quote, participating in the formulation or execution of a common plan or conspiracy to wage aggressive war. And this is why it's interesting to parallel these with FDR and Pearl Harbor. He would be guilty. Mm, Absolutely. He would be guilty of this. Don't worry, guys. We get there later. America catches up. So according to the indictment presented to the IMT, the defendants intended first to transform democratic Germany into a police state by contriving and exploiting threats to the nation's stability and security. Okay. So they were looking to split the state and use one part against another to change the whole system. Okay, hold on. I just want to go over something with you real quick. They were citing national security concerns in order to eliminate a more democratic power. Right, that's what the Nuremberg trials were contesting. And they wanted to split the state and use the allegiant members of the state in order to transform the ones who protested? Yes. Okay, just making sure we're on the the same page. I'm going to have a panic attack. Let's talk about false flags. Wait, what? A false flag. So this is a internet... Keyword. You're going to need this if you go out there on the internet. Hi, internet trolls. <laughs> you hungry? So a false flag is defined by Lance DeHaven Smith in the contemporary sense as describing covert operations that are designed to deceive in such a way that activities appear as if though they're 
being carried out by entities, groups, or nation other than those who actually planned and executed them. So in the Gleiwitz incident, it was planned by Germany, executed by Germany, but portrayed as if though the Poles had done it. Right, and same with the Reichstag fire. Same with the Manchurian incident. So this is like our modern, current internet meme understanding of what a false flag is. But the history of the false flag term has roots in war going way back. Right. It's it's a naval warfare term. So it was whenever one person would use the flag of another before engaging. Fi- flying false colors in order to approach the vessel you wish to engage with. Like right. get close range. Exactly. And it was... Accept it as a permissible ruse de guerre. But by contrast, if you would continue to fly the false flag while engaging, then that would be considered perfidy. Or a very significant breach of etiquette. That is not how we fight these gentlemanly wars. Right. So perfidy is a, is a war crime. So perfidy, aside from being really fun to say, is a form of deception in which one side promises an act of good faith such as, you know, like waving the truce flags we've all seen in Looney Tunes, you know that moment, and then shooting them when they come to say, okay, game over. It's very dishonorable. Yes, it's a scalawag type behavior. And so this is considered breach in the laws of war and a war crime. So interesting note in history, fun kind of false flag incident. Maybe an urban legend. There's an element. In 1914, in the Battle of Trinidad, the British auxiliary cruiser RMS Carmania and the German auxiliary cruiser SMS Captain Trafalgar engaged. Okay, that sounds like fairly standard practice. So both of these ships were commercial ships that had been conscripted, conscripted yeah, yeah, and altered for the war effort. So given guns. Right, but also changed and altered and painted and, and refitted. And so... They went all HGTV up in there? For sure. Oh my god, today we're going to remodel. <laughs> okay, so this space is just beyond impractical for warfare. We're going to be going in and putting in new carpeting, oh. seeing if we can get back to that original hardwood in this area. Lots of these like flashy lights, like you see in the movies. i give that feel, give that ambiance. <laughs> but so, the Germans did want to give... Their ship, the Captain Trafalgar, some ambiance. Oh. Or more actually, a disguise. <laughs> okay. She Did it wear a mustache? <laughs> no, but her forward funnel was removed, and the remaining two were repainted red with black tops. And interestingly enough, it was painted to resemble the Carmania in her pre-war livery. <gasps> dirty. That is dirty tactics. But... <laughs> The is that actual, like impersonating another ship? Like, is that a charge? But of course, the actual Carmania is who takes down the fake Carmania. No! Well, that's just like, that is so ironic and so beautiful, and I love it. But as urban legends go, one states that the RMS Carmania was altered to represent the Captain Trafalgar. So that both ships were altered to look like each other, which is super fun, but. Probably just, just a story, story yeah. Okay, so this has been a part of war for a long time, but I feel like after one freaking Google, I feel like this is not just isolated to the arena of war anymore. I feel like it's become a part of American culture. 
this idea that there's a larger force kind of working to control the masses and moving around in shadowy places and carrying out covert operations. I feel like that's become something that America just loves to hold on to. Well, without a doubt it is. And through time, there have been a lot of writing about the paranoid style in American politics. And the original paper that kind of cites this and lays it all out is written by Hofstadter. It was published in 1965. Oh, I can think of so many reasons that someone would write a paper about the paranoid style of American politics in 1965. And so we'll get back to that. But in it, he states that there have always been these mass fears in American politics in the 18th and 19th century. And we've talked about this ad nauseum in many episodes, fears of Catholics, fears of Jews, fears of immigrants. So xenophobia. Fears of the Illuminati. That doesn't have a phobia, but it should. Fear of the Masons. The KKK got in on that too, actually. They really did not like Masons. And anarchists, etc. Women. <laughs> Just name anything. <laughs> And another writer stated that while there have been these conspiracy theories around, after World War I is whenever people started to look at the federal government itself. But that's not true at all. Because our country, international listeners, the United States. (laughs) If you couldn't tell by our glorious accents. Texas, I mean the United States. (laughs) Come and take it. Is founded on conspiracy theories. I 175 bajillion percent agree with that. We like to think that we are these glorious doves, that we are just emblems of democracy and world peace. But my favorite thing to think about as I fall asleep at night is (laughs) founding fathers are traitors. And they were. So Sir Richard Evans of Cambridge says that the conspiracy theories are built into American culture because the country was founded on them. President Obama even stated that the founding fathers were paranoid about government conspiracy. But without a doubt, the founding fathers considered political power as this corrupting force. And our entire government was founded with these ideas of conspiracy and corruption in the back of their minds. Now, the colonists viewed the events of the 1760s and 1770s through this ideological prism that had been shaped by English thinkers. And this tradition held that liberty was always fragile and vulnerable, that power was always aggressive and corrupting, and that political liberty required constant vigilance. These ideas had been kept in circulation during the 18th century by radical Whig politicians in Britain, including Thomas Gordon and John Trenchard. The colonists read these warnings about the dangers posed by a standing army, the government corruption caused by government officials lusting after power, and the evils caused by public debt, and almost had a paranoid view about it. For example, Madison wrote in The Federalist, you must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Damn, Madison! That's why you're the father of the Constitution. What? Holy shit. And Dolly Madison saved the sergeant from the White House. Lord Almighty, you two are amazing. You get my non-presidential seal of approval. Madison is amazing. You should go read some Madison writing. He's fantastic. I have, since I was literally three years old, been obsessed with American presidents. It is a weird fixation. When I was three, I memorized 
all of the presidents in order, knew their birthdays, wives' names, places of burial, etc. I was a really weird kid. Were? I, I am. I am. But for three, I think that's exceptionally weird. I adore this sentiment that's put in. And I don't know if it's just because I've always been fascinated with it or if I'm just so thoroughly Americanized, but I cannot imagine a system of government functioning without that constant looking over your shoulder. The absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, that's just something I've so grown up reading and believing. And it's impossible for me to imagine a world without that idea. Right, so in years leading up, Colonists were increasingly convinced that the British government was pursuing a deliberate conspiracy to destroy the balance of the Constitution, English Constitution, different one, and eliminate their freedom. So here's a few quotes. Tell me if they are from message boards or founding fathers. So this is a new game we're going to be playing called Alt-Right or Founding Fathers. Endeavoring by every piece of art and despotism to fix the shackles of slavery upon us. Is there a you in endeavoring? <laughs> I don't know. I think it was translated. Oh, okay. I'm f- shackle. Uh, it's got to be a founding father. Nobody says shackles anymore. George Washington said that. That would be the guy. And so, of course, this one's going to be a founding father, too. So as Thomas Jefferson said, single acts of tyranny may be ascribed to the accidental opinion of a day. But a series of oppressions, begun at a distinguished period and pursued unalterably through every change of ministers, to plainly prove a deliberate, systematical plan of reducing us to slavery. They were really worried about white slavery. (laughs) That's in 1774. And so, interestingly enough, the British officials in the colonies and in England also thought that the colonists were conspiring to establish an independent empire, despite their professions of loyalty to the king. So the colonists thought that the English were trying to you know, like eliminate their power, and the English thought that the colonists were planning to rise up against them, and so they were both really paranoid, and Thomas Jefferson was seeing patterns that maybe weren't there. And this is all just silly, except they're both true. Except they're both true. They were both right. So, of course, the Declaration of Independence is written. I've heard of it. And so everyone knows kind of the preamble. Don't really read the rest of it. rest of it's awesome. The rest of it is amazing. So the indictment states, The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world was thomas jefferson sending the king of england a conspiracy theory yeah he was charging him with it he was charging him with conspiracy to commit white slavery <laughs> and then it goes on with the indictment he has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us how was he waging war well he was transporting large <laughs> so this is from the declaration oh he t- at- tommy's gonna tell yeah. me yeah oh okay. there's a list Oh, is this a breakup letter? It's a listicle. This isn't a Dear John, it's a Dear George. Dear George, you're an asshole. (laughs) Go garden. (laughs) Farm in your overalls. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with the circumstances of cruelty and perfidy. 
scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. And George is like, I've got carrots. So they're talking about the headless horsemen, the the boats and boats of headless horsemen they're sending over here. The Hessians? The, the, yes, same thing. I got peas too. So it sound, it does sound kind of like rambling, like they're just sending mercenaries after us, but he, he was. Okay. So he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose unknown rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Okay, first of all, I just want to point out to anyone who is listening that I think Native Americans get first racism. First official racism of the United States of America. This is like the first official document. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say we, we get that one. And I did not know that the British were making the Indian savages attack the white people. So they actually were. Shut up. In late 1775, the governor of Virginia offered freedom to slaves who would fight with the British, leading to numerous rumors of British-incited slave revolts, the domestic insurrections, and royal governors had also incited Indian attacks on backcountry settlers. Why? Because they were mean? Keep them under their thumb. Oh, my God. So they would need them for protection, basically. They were like mafia lords so i guess you could say thomas jefferson (laughs) goes on to say in every stage of these oppressions we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people and then he finishes his case for independence they too have been deaf to the voice of justice We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. The potatoes grow under the ground, you see. You have to dig them up. So, if you don't get the jokes you've been making about King George, the madness of King George... Is a thing. Didn't story had porphyria? Or syphilis? What? Porphyria is the most thing he had. That's the vampire thing. It is, it is. So King George was a vampire who was sucking all the lifeblood out of America. Write it down. It's true fact. It's true. It's not. It's true. Okay. Some of it's true. So, and in addition to being a vampire, he also had a real passion for, you know, urban gardening. He was the original hipster. He, like, just wanted to go play in the dirt and dig vegetables all day and was pretty much a figurehead for the rest of the British government. And he had peas, too. So... I personally like to imagine that he gets this like horrendous breakup letter from his colonies where they're like, look, y'all, it's not us, it's you, but maybe we can be friends one day, okay? And King George is out there and they're, you know, a bunch of magistrates are all reading this and George all puckered up and King George is over there and he's like, I like to play in my garden, boys. Do you want to come see my garden? They're like, oh, for Christ's sake, George, your mouth is bleeding again, you bastard. Go inside. Jeez, your gums, you look disgusting. Hail the king, etc. Send more Hessians. Can you sign this, please? Oh, just take the crayon and go get him out of the garden. So luckily, after the Revolutionary War, we steer clear of conspiracy theories well up until, you know, World War II, when it comes back into fashion Except for now. Except for now. So one little conspiracy theory. A bit, bit scandal, but it is related to President Polk. 
James came. He was a tricky bastard. What did he do this time? What did he do? On May 11th of 1846, President James Polk reports to Congress that Mexico has invaded U.S. territory and that American blood had been shed on American soil. Two days later, Congress declares war on Mexico. But did they, though? But, like... Did they declare war? Yes. This is the Mexican-American War. I've heard of it. No, but was American blood shed on American soil? I just have the feeling that that's, like, key. It is key. Because just like in World War II, just like in these other ones, they're looking for an act of aggression. Looking for an act of aggression. Just give me a reason, son. Exactly. That's what all this is. I wish you would. That is exactly what this entire episode is. And we may have found our title. So the Whig opposition insisted that President Polk, a Democrat, provide evidence to support his claims about an invasion of U.S. territory. So U.S. troops had moved into territory that Mexico considered its own and had been warned that subsequent movements would be regarded as an invasion of Mexican privacy. Whigs rejected Polk's claim that American blood had been shed on American soil. So instead of the Mexicans sneaking over the border and coming to kill Americans, Americans may have accidentally, you know, wandered down Mexico way. And after they'd been told that if you wander down Mexico way, we're going to perceive that as an invasion. So maybe we invaded Mexico a little? Maybe so. So, but President Pug was standing by his claims. That is right. You own your bullshit. In his second annual message on December 8th, 1846, he said that the war was neither desired nor provoked by the United States. On the contrary, all honorable means were resorted to avert it. He said that Mexico commenced hostilities and thus, by her own act, forced the war upon us. He objected to these misapprehensions that the war was unjust and unnecessary, and he insisted that Mexico became the aggressor by invading our soil in hostile array and shedding the blood of our citizens. So I come from a place that is like, it's the large settlement with a light that recently removed its light. It's called Robeline, and it's called that because it was formerly Robbers Lane, and it was this little intersection between Spanish and French territory. It was a no man's land. And it was a famous place where outlaws would go. And it's why it was called Robber's Lane. And so knowing that history and knowing what kind of place that was and how many crooks and things hid out there, I have a hard time believing that we had really clearly defined borders at this point. And so I'm thinking that Polk may be full of shit. So the border was actually, it was defined in the Texas Revolution. <laughs> Okay, so maybe not so much room for whoops-a-daisies. But is anybody going to call him on his bullshit? Oh, the Whigs were all against it. So in an American review dated January 1847, they described Polk's statement on the Mexican War as so well calculated to mislead the popular mind and to imbue it with false impressions. The war was brought on originally by his own fault. Strong words, Whigs. Strong words. But I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. Ah, well, there's this young upstart. Okay. Freshman Whig representative. So a freshman representative is like, hey, president, I'm calling your bullshit. Right. So Abraham Lincoln. Okay. That's a hell of a freshman representative 
this one's going to be trouble. We need to keep an eye on him. That's right. Honest Abe puts forward the spot resolutions, requesting that Polk submit evidence to Congress that the land on which the initial battle occurred was indeed American property. Lincoln wanted the president to, quote, Answer with facts and not with arguments. Damn, son! <laughs> I'm sorry. These like are just so America fuck yeah quotes. <laughs> That's just amazing. Facts, not arguments. Now, there is a novel idea. There is a very novel idea. And then Lincoln said he came forward with a string of proof on that point, referring to Polk, and that he made an issue, which was a false issue. Oh, no, it was alternative facts. But anyway. Oh, more. The president was deeply conscious of being in the wrong in this matter, that he felt the blood of this war, like the blood of Abel, was crying from the ground against him. So this is very much like an 1800s version of a drop the mic moment. I don't know what the equivalent is. Drop the megaphone. I don't know. Yes. That's stupid. Punk makes this very specific sound. And everyone knows you've done it. I love it. That's now official. You know it wasn't made of metal, right? Funk. <laughs> it makes a funk. It absolutely does. It's fact. I think that is the hardest a freshman representative has ever called out any president in the history of the United States. Oh, well, on January 3rd of 1848, the House of Representatives passed an amendment stating that the Mexican War had been unnecessarily and unconstitutionally begun. And, of course, Lincoln voted for the censure language. So he's like, I just want the record to show that he was an asshole. He kept defending his point, but later on he was like, maybe the border was defined? Maybe? Who, Polk? Oh, yeah. So maybe some some late life backpedaling. Yeah, he was like, okay, so I went and reviewed Texas history again. It was like literally <laughs> what he said. He was like, okay, so I found what they said about the border. Okay, I'm sorry. Did he say, that's just the information I was given? Yeah, he was like, that's the information I read. He's like, it's there. I read it. Okay. I'll post the quote. <laughs> so this was them twisting the facts mm-hmm. in order to incite war and also to get public on their side. Absolutely. You know, they yeah. wanted the public to think that Mexicans had started this and that they were invading. Right. It was very, as they said, calculated to mold public opinion or mold the popular opinion but as things like the press and a literate and more educated population arises through time that public opinion matters more and more it absolutely does and it's going to take me to one of my favorite moments in american rhyming history remember the main to hell with spain that's the one So in honor of our American War episode, we're drinking white Russians. So if you hear a clinking, that's what that is. So before we begin the discussion of the USS Maine, we need to begin a discussion of yellow journalism. Ooh, your favorite. Yellow journalism absolutely is my favorite. And I just want to take a moment to make a public service announcement. Yellow journalism is called yellow journalism. Wait, I know this. It's called yellow journalism because it was written on yellow paper. Okay, uh, that's stupid. Okay, okay, wait. It was called yellow journalism because it was cowardly. It, that's better, but wrong. So, it was written on white paper. They look yellow because they're old now. Oh. Oh. And I like the cowardly thing. 
but no one was that clever. It was called Yellow Journalism because of a popular strip, cartoon strip, that ran in the New York world, which was published by Joseph Pulitzer, called The Yellow Kid. Pulitzer. That sounds familiar. Right? Hold on to that thought. And this strip in particular was set in New York slums called Hogan's Alley, and it was drawn by Richard F. Outcult. When Pulitzer started publishing this, the world's sales went crazy. So in 1896, in an effort to boost sales of the New York Journal, William Randolph Hearst... Oh, he sounds familiar. Hold on to that. Hired Outcult, the artist, away from Pulitzer. <gasps> Sneaky bastard. Sneaky bastard indeed. Launching a fierce bidding war between the two publishers over the cartoonist. Hearst ultimately won his battle, but Pulitzer refused to give in and hired a new cartoonist to continue drawing the cartoon for his paper. Sneaky bastard. I was indeed. This battle over the yellow kid and the greater market share gave rise to the term yellow journalism. The more you know. It absolutely is a public service announcement. I've always known that it was called yellow journalism after the strip, The Yellow Kid. It was incredibly popular. But this embodies all the key points that you need to internalize to get a full understanding of what yellow journalism meant when they said it. It meant this profit-driven, sensationalized, popularity-mongering, underhanded, sneaky tactic war between the presses to try and get bigger market shares, to try and generate more allegiance from the public. So how would they do that? Well, they really stepped away from the idea that we need to be fair and balanced. They sensationalized headlines. Even if the story was reported in a basically factual way, the headlines were always Lifetime Movie Network level sensationalized. They went full pathos and sentimentality. In a lot of stories, they always had a kind of an underdog character when they could find him or a lady in peril like using very traditional storytelling models instead of cleaned up reporting, streamlined reporting, I guess. They featured illustrations and color cartoons. The introduction of illustrations doubled their circulation. I get that. I do too. It draws you in so much more. Yes, you can picture it. You have a face. And they were vaguely too... Totally obsessed with scandal. Oh. Sex. Ooh. Crime. Oh, no. Political intrigue. And war. War. They sold tons of ad space. The average paper was six to eight pages in length. And three of those pages were generally ads. And so by doing that, they were able to charge a lot less and some more people could buy them, too. Absolutely. They charged a penny where... Other more reputable, traditional, whatever you want to say, papers charge three pennies. Like the paper of record? Like the New York Times. Yeah. Yes, the failing New York Times. And so they did have a lot of extra capital rolling around from their ad sales and their huge distributions. And like Hearst originally started publishing the New York Morning Journal and eventually began publishing the New York Evening Journal. He was running two papers a day. So they were making crazy money. And this allowed them to finance previously unimaginable field reporting. Embedded reporters. This is a quote from Munsey Magazine at the time. 
Many journalists conceive great undertakings, but refrain from executing them on the account of the expense involved. The new journalist is not troubled with a hesitation on that score. Like a general who orders guns to be trained in a position where effective service will be rendered, he does not stop to count the cost. Or as Hartley Davis, another writer from the time, put it, the fact remains that the yellow journals are progressive newspapers. Those which spend the largest sums to get the latest and best news and present it most attractively and forcefully. Forcefully. I know. It was a, ter- it was a page turn, too, so I didn't know it was coming when I was reading that. <laughs> attractively. Turn the page. And forcefully. I was like, ah, there it is. There it, there is. it is. So, I mean, Pulitzer. I know Pulitzer, the Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize. Prize. That's the right, one. Yes, the guy. Amazing journalism. Yes. And Joseph Pulitzer was one of the key publishers in the establishment of the Yellow Journals. He was born in Hungary and first started reporting during the Civil War in St. Louis, Missouri. Eventually, he purchased the failing Newark World and brought it around. He found a way to make it very profitable. And despite failing health at the time that all of this conflict is going to be taking place... He was very, very ill and almost blind, but he still directed the paper's daily operations through an army of secretaries that would come get his orders and go back and tell reporters what to do. So you can imagine how great of a working environment that was. Sounds fantastic. And he offered titillation and lurid headlines and left the more analytic reporting to the paper of record. I mean, they charge me three cents and it's dry as hell. (laughs) I've got tittles and lation. And pictures. Of tittles and lation. And a cartoon. It's funny, right? So the New York world basically created sensationalized journalism. And people dismissed it as like tabloidy, not intellectually fruitful. And so our other guy, yes. William Randolph Hearst. Might have heard of him. Hearst Publications, still around. And we also the inspiration for Citizen Kane. Rosebud. He saw this idea and latched on. Oh, yes. And then he moved to New York to see if he could beat Pulitzer at his own game. A few things you need to know about William Randolph Hearst. Pretty interesting cat. I think he may have the most American story in the history of American stories. His father was given the San Francisco Examiner, which is a newspaper, to settle a gambling debt. Now that's American. Yes, it is. His dad was George Hearst, who was a U.S. senator. And George found the largest mining discovery in United States history out west. So he was a prospector senator that won a paper in a poker game. I'm just going to. I'm going to say it's poker. Definitely. Going with it. He was sitting in the outlaw position. Didn't want anybody sneaking up behind him. And somehow won a newspaper. So, of course, as a prospector made good, you always want your kids to have it easier than you did. So George packs William up and sends him off to Harvard. And it was a very formative experience for him because he edited the the Harvard Lampoon while he was there before being expelled for bad conduct. After being expelled, he wrote to his dad in 1887 and told him that he would like to have the newspaper. And his dad said, you'll never make any money in papers, son. Why don't you get a ranch or a gold mine like a real man? That's a guess. But they did have kind of that argument. And in 1895, William Randolph Hearst purchased the New York Morning Journal, which was in Direct competition with old Joe. This is the famous battle of the yellow journals in New York. Absolutely. There's a great book 
I think it's called Trial of the Century, which a lot of books are. But it's about the Gurdenschuppe case. You're making that word up. Gurdenschuppe? No, it's a huge deal. It's an excellent book. And it talks about this murder trial that was going on and the way that the world and the journal were covering it and how it really embodied the battle. It's an excellent book. Pause. Go read it. Really should. It's really good. So these guys knew how to find a juicy scoop. So they were reporting on that case. Gurdenschuppe. And all the sex and the scandals and and war and political intrigue. Yes. And there was a particular little conflict they found very fascinating that was happening not too far away from New York, relatively speaking. And it was down Cuba way. The Spanish tensions with Cuba were growing. And a man named Butcher Weiler. Is that his real name? It's not his real name. It's what I think Hirsch called him. And... He was sent there to curtail the growing rebellion. He was sent from Spain. And so he decided that the best way to deal with these upstart rebels was to concentrate them. Oh, that's a terrible idea. Yes. So 300,000 people were sent to concentration camps by the end of the war. Holy cow. A lot of people died. Very few people, it seems, were actually executed. But the living conditions were horrible in these camps. And most of the people who were dying were dying from disease or malnutrition. So they'd been reporting on this. They'd been covering it and covering it. And it just didn't seem like it was going to go anywhere. It didn't seem like they were going to get it off the ground because that freaking pacifist dude, William McKinley, is in office. And he's just not wanting to get his hands dirty. A failed president. A failed president. That's a Sue Sylvester quote. Deep tracks, man. But as luck or fate... Call it fate. (laughs) I don't know what you're singing. Call it luck. (laughs) On February 15th of 1898, the USS Maine, which had been put in Havana Harbor to protect the United States' interest in Cuba, explodes. Oh, shit. Yes. It sinks and 260 American soldiers perish after an explosion rips a hole in her hull. And people assumed that this was the result of Spaniards. Spanish treachery. And this is where we coin the fantastic. Remember the main to hell with Spain. You remember that. American history. I do too. Let's make buttons. So despite the fact that, quote, from the State Department, sober observers and initial report by the colonial government of Cuba concluded that the explosion had occurred on board. But Hearst and Pulitzer who had for several years been selling papers by fanning the anti-Spanish public opinion in the United States, published rumors of plots to sink the ship. Plots. Conspiracies. Conspiracies. It was reported on with a clear slant. Everything leading up to this point had been reported with a clear angle. For example, Pulitzer tried to refute theories that the explosion could have possibly been internal and focused solely on the explosion being an external agent. He told editors to blame Spain and to focus only on the Spanish angle. And he only interviewed Cubans about the sinking of the ship. So while this is happening in the world, you get this typical line from the New York Journal. The Spanish treatment of women is unspeakable. As for men captured by them alive, the blood curdles in my veins as I think about the atrocity of the cruelty practiced on these helpless victims. I'm up in arms. Right. You're pissed. To hell. With Spain. Exactly. And then 
there were captions like this in the journal as well. Spanish monsters shoot and kill unarmed Cuban. In reality, the Cuban had a knife and he had tried to kill the soldier. And the soldier killed the rebel in self-defense. But this was a caption for an illustration. So you may say to yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. You may say to yourself, they did not have cameras. Where the hell are they getting these pictures? Or they did not have very portable cameras. They were definitely not printing photographs and newspapers. Well, Hearst had sent Frederick Remington. The famous illustrator of these Western cowboy paintings. Yes, very Americana. When you think Old West, you're probably thinking of a Frederick Remington painting or a John Wayne movie. Or a ripoff of the two. Yes. And so he had sent Frederick Remington to Cuba. And he was like, there's really not much happening here, boss. And Hearst was like, look. I tell you what, you supply the pictures and I'll supply the war. Oh, damn. Yes. So this is all happening outside of the realm of, you know, the government who actually has the power to make a war, in theory. <laughs> in theory. So McKinley asked Congress for permission to use force in Spain. And that was what public opinion was demanding of him. He, even though... He had said avoiding the conflict until he left office would make him the happiest man in the world. Now, he did want to make it clear that he was not going to annex Cuba, and that was just for Cuban independence through the Teller Amendment. Yes, Congress passed that, and it did stipulate that this was not a colonization maneuver. We were not going to pick up Cuba. Because Cuba was very rich in resources, and it would have been a hell of a catch. And after the Teller Amendment was passed, they declared war on Spain. But despite all of McKinley's hemming and hawing, there was a man in government who was fucking stoked, bro. Who? Teddy. Teddy. Teddy Roosevelt. And the Yeti. Teddy and the Yeti. Yes, that one. He's back. But this is a prequel. So what was Teddy doing? He was the assistant secretary of the Navy. So did he get in his canoe and paddle over there? No, he rode a horse. He rode a horse in the water? I don't know. But yes, he was definitely mounted on horseback during this conflict. Right, this is where you get the Rough Riders. Absolutely. Upon learning that we might go to war with Spain, Teddy said, I should welcome almost any war, for I think our country needs one. And the Rough Riders were like a very key part of this American myth that would spawn from the Spanish-American War. These are like our heroes. Well, they really kind of were. They were the first volunteer cavalry regiment ever raised in the United States. And they were made up of, to quote the Park Service, a ragtag group of polo players, hunters, cowboys, Native Americans, and athletic college buddies. He was like sitting around the club like, hey, who wants to go fight a war? Cool, come on, let's go. And this is another quote from the National Park Service page on the subject. The Battle of San Juan Heights was fought on July 1st, which Roosevelt called the great day of my life. He led a series of charges up Kettle Hill and San Juan Heights on his horse, Texas. Of course. While the Rough Riders followed him on foot, he rode up and down the hill, encouraging the men with orders, March! March! He killed one Spaniard with a revolver salvaged from the main. No. <laughs> that sounds like a story. I love. Uh, no, I believe it. I believe everything they say about Teddy Roosevelt. That's a rule. Other regiments continued alongside him. An American flag was raised over San Juan Heights by the end of the battle. 
So when Everhurst and Pollitzer weren't reporting on the Rough Riders... Which, how can you not? What else were they saying about the terrible Spanish who had bombed the Maine? Well, Hearst's journal told the story of an American sent to a concentration camp without a trial, and that got a lot of play with the public. He also told about a woman named Senorita Clemencia Rango, who was forced out of the country for helping rebels. And she was strip searched. Oh my. This is Victorian America. People were pissed. Up in arms. Up in pearls were clutched. Now, there was an important detail that just kind of slipped the editor's minds as they were, you know, putting the story together. And this was the fact that she had been strip searched by women. Not, not important. Not, not men. Important. Yeah, okay. Not fine. important. Fine. Right, leave that out. <laughs> okay, that's better. You're right. It's a better story. Can we get a picture of this? For I guess. You're paying the bills. You did supply that war. So Hirsch was nicknamed the father of yellow journalism due to his role in influencing the country's decision to go to war. And he did all kinds of sneaky bastard tricks at this point. He hired Pulitzer's best writers away for more money, as he had done with Alt-Cult, and as he did through the Golden Shupa trial. And he recruited writers like Ambrose Spears, Mark Twain, Richard Harding Davis, who was a very famous journalist at the time, Famous for his movie star good looks. Oh my. Oh my. And Stephen Crane, who wrote The Red Badge of Courage. Wow, so some heavy hitters. Absolutely. This is the American literary canon for that, like, generation. He also chartered a yacht called the Sylvia and fitted out with offices, printing equipment, and a dark room and arrived in Cuba. Wait for it. I'm waiting. Before the army. You are kidding me. Nope. He had three additional yachts, the Anita, the Buccaneer, and the Echo. He had four yachts out there. Yes, and those were just taken back and forth between Cuba and Florida, or Key West. But not to be outdone. The world did have its own dispatch boats there, the Confidence and the Triton. And also, they had this guy whose little short biography is one of my favorites that I've ever found, like his blurb. His name was James Krillman. So they also had this guy whose bio little blurb is one of my favorites I've ever come across. His name was James Krillman. He was born in 1859. At the time of the Spanish-American War, he was working for the world, so Pulitzer. He was born in Montreal and moved to New York in 1872. He was determined to become a writer. He joined James Gordon Bennett Jr.'s The New York Herald in 1876. Krillman traveled extensively in pursuit of stories and was willing to take personal risk. He was shot while reporting the Hatfield-McCoy feud. He interviewed Sitting Bull and other Indian leaders. Krillman was hired by the world and covered the Sino-Japanese War in 1895. His shocking reports of Japanese atrocities were sensations and widely disbelieved. This is like the guy in the Pulitzer Prize should be named after. It was one of Pulitzer's reporters, at least. Sent to Cuba in the spring of 1896, his first article, dated May 1st, was an investigative piece about Spanish slayings of non-combatants in Campo, Florida, near Havana. He was promptly expelled from the island, but what he saw there made him a dedicated convert to the Cuban Revolution. Later, now working for Hearst, <clears throat> now working for Hearst, sneaky bastard, Creelman was sent to Spain as the Madrid correspondent for the journal. About Creelman, Hearst said, the beauty about Creelman is the fact that whatever you give him to do instantly become, in his mind, the most important assignment 
ever given to any writer. He thinks that the very fact of the job being given to him means that it's a task surpassing importance, else it would not have been given to so great a man as he. And interestingly, like, while the yellow press are having their field day with the main, only two mainstream papers covered the story of the, the explosion of Havana Harbor. Really? Yes, it was not very widely reported. The journal hired divers, so the journal is Hearst, hired divers to explore the wreck before the Navy sent men down. Wow, he was like all in. He was like, I'm getting there before the Navy. We're going dive. I made this war. I'm going to profit from it. No, no American ever said that ever. The journal's correspondents actually received instructions to use divers to find the cause of the explosion, whether favorable or unfavorable. Yeah, right. On the surface, it looked pretty fair and balanced. But when the divers returned from the site, they described and focused on the horrors of seeing so many dead sailors, along with the alleged evidence of treachery. It's like these were Americans going down and pulling other Americans out of a ship. Like maybe their opinion on whether or not the explosion had gone in or out was a little skewed by, you know, the trauma of seeing so many dead American sailors. But of course, this was richly illustrated and published. Well, of course. So everything that's coming out of Cuba was being censored by the Spanish. And so the way that some of the reporters got around this unfortunate detail was by using a stolen cable that had been previously approved by the censorship board. And they were able to get their news out without being infringed upon. And they continued in other ways to kind of subvert the censorship effort. For example, one of the writers that was there was fond of composing poems. Oh, that's nice. In order to get his point across. And he would hide information or kind of like coded meaning. Ooh, this is like secret spy stuff. I love it. Other papers. They weren't having it. They were pissed. Miffed, I think is actually the term. The Chicago Herald claimed, These yellow papers have become notorious for furnishing fake news. The fakeness has lasted since the beginning of the hostilities in Cuba. And a writer for the New York Evening Post, E.L. Godkin, said that nothing so disgraceful as the behavior of these two newspapers, the New York Journal and the New York World, has ever been known in the history of journalism. Gross misrepresentations of facts, deliberate invention of tales, circulated to excite the public, and wanton recklessness in the construction of headlines. So, regardless of their tone, regardless of their, like, nah, I can't believe the indignity, and blah, 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 they still cited the shit out of them. They would s- use their reporters in order to have any information from Cuba, like, from the actual conflict zone, and then complain about them being there. So, without a doubt, Hearst and Pulitzer really working together but especially hearst it was working against each other it was the competition killed the beast True, created this situation that led to the war they created this false flag situation well yeah but what actually happened to the main nobody knows nobody can agree on it nobody can agree on it like there are reports in the 90s saying that it was a mine and there are reports in the 80s saying it was definitely an onboard explosion. Like, this is still a thing people are not agreeing on now. I think, isn't the government stance that it was an onboard explosion? I don't know. There are so many official versions and so many addendums and changes and reversals. 
No, I, I think the official story is. Uh, I know what I read in the paper. Facts. As I mentioned, Mark Twain was one of the people who was sent to cover the Spanish-American War. And he later formed some really strong opinions about the American intervention there and later in the Philippines. We entered the conflict in the Philippines in much the way that we entered the conflict in Cuba to come in and... Free the people. Spread... Democracy. Smallpox. And spread democracy. Smallpox, yes, democracy. You were right. He believed that freeing Cuba from Spanish rule was one of the greatest accomplishments of the United States. He t- said in the New York Herald in 1900, Oh, I've been gone, doing many things, and in this time I've been absent. You've done lots of things. Some of them are well worth remembering, too. Now, we have fought a righteous war since I've been gone, and that's rare in history. A righteous war is so rare that it's almost unknown in history. But, by the grace of that war, we set Cuba free, and we joined her to those three or four free nations that exist on this earth. But after the way the Philippines went down, which is a whole different episode, at least, he was disgusted. And he wrote in an article titled, To a Person Sitting in a Dark Room, in 1901, There must be two Americas, one that sets the captive free and one that takes the once captive's new freedom away from him and picks a quarrel with him with nothing to found it on and then kills him to get his land. True, we have crushed a deceived and confiding people. We have turned against the weak and the friendless who trusted us. We have stamped out a just and intelligent and well-ordered republic. We have stabbed an ally in the back and slapped the face of a guest. We have bought a shadow from the enemy that hadn't it to sell. We have robbed a trusting friend of his land and his liberty. We have invited a clean young man to shoulder a discredited musket and do a bandit's work under the flag which bandits have been accustomed to fear, not to follow. We have debauched America's honor. We have blackened her face to the world. And as for the flag for the Philippine province, it is easily managed. We can have a special one. Our states do it. We can just have our usual flag with the white stripes painted black and the stars replaced with skulls and crossbones. So he's bringing up that idea of the two types of people, the two parts of the state that are conflicting. They're fighting against each other. Right. And he's saying they both exist in public space and in government. It's true. In policy. And we say we're going to do this thing, but we have ulterior motives. Like, you can't trust the official story is almost what he's saying. Like, there are two versions of the truth. There's the official truth and there's the hidden agenda. And in essence, that's what all these false flag conspiracy theory ideas are based on. And another person who wrote prolifically about the Spanish-American War is Walt Whitman. I knew him. He's quite fabulous. But he says, For America, if eligible at all to downfall and ruin, is eligible within herself, not without. For I see clearly that the combined foreign world could not beat her down. And I think that's another important part of the ethos, the, the character that's formed going into the more modern era, going into the world's wars, where we 
feel invincible. We feel like we've been able to go out and prove ourselves as a national power, which is one of the major accomplishments of the Spanish-American War. We became an international power. Right. That's when it really started. And we seemed invincible. We had, we'd never lost. And 1-0. Yeah. We won the Civil War, too. Wait. We also lost it. <laughs> wait. Call it a draw. But the idea that internal dissent and internal corruption would be the thing that would destroy America, that the threat could not come from without, makes things like Pearl Harbor unfathomable. And far, far down the road makes things like September 11th unfathomable. But with the two wars we've previously talked about, and especially with the Maine, and with the rise of yellow journalism, and the importance of the popular opinion, we see that that really plays a huge role in this. You know, we have to get public opinion on our side to be able to go to war. Right, because we have to be reelected. I mean, in theory, that's the point. <laughs> but to move forward in time a little bit and still focus on Cuba. Oh, I like a nice cigar. So we freed them, and they stayed free forever, and that was awesome. Good job, guys. Good job. Mark Twain was proud. And in 1959, Castro takes power. Whoops. And becomes the first communist leader in the Western Hemisphere. Oopsie daisies. Sacre bleu. Only 90 miles from the U.S. shore. Oh, that's going to sit so well with America. So as we know, America wasn't too excited about this. They tried the whole Bay of Pigs thing. It was a flop. Yeah. The CIA-backed invasion of Cuba by Cuban exiles that was... A complete failure. The military was not allowed to provide firepower to the Cuban exiles. So, don't think the CIA was pushed down for long by this failure. No, I think this is just a call to get more creative. What do you think? Exactly. So, the CIA and the government started to develop a plan. That's never been the heading of a good sentence. That has never been the the beginning of a lovely story. That is the antithesis of Once Upon a Time. So this memo was written to indicate brief but precise descriptions of pretext, which they consider would provide justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. U.S. military intervention will result from a period of heightened U.S.-Cuban tensions, which place the U.S. in the position of suffering justifiable grievances. World opinion in the U.N. form should be favorably affected by developing the international image of the Cuban government as rash and irresponsible and as an alarming and unpredictable threat to the peace. Such a plan would enable a logical buildup of incidents to be combined with other seemingly unrelated events to camouflage the ultimate objective. So this is not Hearst? Oh, this is the United States government? This this is is not a yellow journalist. This is officially sanctioned... Real oh, yeah. strategy. Oh, for sure. And it's top secret. Very secret. Deep track CIA top secret plans to make Cuba look bad. Seriously. You know, to sway public and world opinion in the United States' favor in order to allow them to have military intervention. This is like saying, oh my God, Becky totally stuffs her bra, you guys. I have proof. <laughs> look at this tissue. I totally found it in our locker. So they planned a series of well-coordinated incidents to take place in and around Guantanamo, 
such as starting fires, landing friendly Cubans across the fence to start riots near the main gates. They were to- importing friendly Cubans oh, yeah. to put them over the fence in Guantanamo to make it appear that not friendly Cubans had crossed the fence. Yes. And to blow up ammunition, to burn aircrafts on the airbase. And then, this is literally from the memo, a remember the main incident could be arranged. (gasps) They're not inspired by it. They're ripping it off. (laughs) No, they say that- They're plagiarizing it. They're saying we can blow up a U.S. ship. Now, they wanted to not have people on it. Oh, well. But that they could conduct funerals for mock victims, for the non-existent crew, and also publish casualty lists in newspapers to cause a helpful wave of U.S. indignation. A helpful wave of U.S. indignation. Just like Hearst did. And just like Pulitzer did. Yeah, but that was Hearst. He was trying to sell papers. He was not trying to... Destroy communism. They also plan to develop a communist Cuban terror campaigns in the Miami area, other areas in Florida, and even in Washington, D.C. And they even said, we could, this is a quote, we could sink a boatload of Cuban refugees, parentheses, real or simulated. (gasps) America! Shame. Shame. Look what you did. Look what you did. They even planned a possible incident to demonstrate a Cuban attack of a commercial airliner, where they would have a military aircraft painted and numbered to match a civilian flight, and then (gasps) swap the planes. Oh, God. And then remotely blow it up over Cuba. Okay. um. And then again, like mock funerals, etc. I find this so deeply disturbing. So, all of this, all of this crazy Operation Northwood stuff was part of a larger operation called Operation Mongoose. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) I'm sorry, Mongoose? It's gonna get the snake. That's all I can, I'm guessing. So, Operation Ricky Ticky Tavi much? Sure. Why was it called Operation Mongoose, Jacob? No, it's actually because there were like 31 facets of the plan and 31 species of mongoose. Or something like that. I think that's still conjecture. I don't know if that's been officially claimed. So Operation Mongoose consisted of many, 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 many facets and plans. Many mongoose. Yes. But one that I just have to mention is Operation Dirty Trick. Shut up. These names are amazing. I just want to be the, can I be the naming bureau? Can I be part of the naming bureau? Sure. And this was a plot to blame Castro in 1962 if the Mercury manned spaceflight carrying John Glenn crashed, saying the objective is to provide the irrevocable proof that should the Mercury manned orbit flight fail, the fault lies with the communists in Cuba. This is to be accomplished by manufacturing various pieces of evidence which would prove electronic interference on the part of the Cubans. Hot damn. That's insane. So if our spaceman falls out of the sky, we blame the communist. That's what they're saying. It's a great scapegoat. (laughs) So take your protein pills and put your helmet on because Castro is coming for you. Assume that the people who came up with this while just sitting around twirling mustaches and drinking mojitos. Why mojitos? To mock the Cubans. Oh, of course. (laughs) So Operation Northwood had the written approval of 
all of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and was presented to Robert McNamara, President Kennedy's Defense Secretary, in March of 1962. Now, there's no written documentation to know if McNamara approved of this or not. But Kennedy said, hell no. Seriously, guys, untie the damsel, stop with the mojitos, the mustaches are a bit much, and no, we're just not. Okay? Okay. But he was not happy with it. People were fired. Kennedy removed Lemnitzer, one of the chief generals, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, of course, he later became the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO in January of 1963. Hmm. So I don't know how punished he was. Ironically, these documents came out in part because of the Oliver Stone film, JFK. Shut up. I didn't think that movie did anything. (laughs) Well, it inspired lots of conspiracies. It also inspired a lot of investigation. And so Congress passed a law designed to increase the public's access to government records related to the assassination. And this memo just happened to be in that giant dossier. James Bramford, who wrote about Operation Northwood, said, The whole point of a democracy is to have leaders responding to the public will. And here, this is the complete reverse the military trying to trick the American people into a war that they want but that nobody else wants. So let's just take a moment here to ask the question, what do they say about those who cannot remember their history, Jacob? They are doomed to repeat it. Let's get some American ginkgo biloba up in this bitch. (laughs) This is like the secondary motto to every one of our history episodes. Ginkgo biloba? You need it. (laughs) You do. And we'll sell it to you on... (laughs) That's why I take my I'm not doomed supplements daily, just to make sure that like an elephant and the grand old party, I never forget. If you don't take your supplements, you'll make an ass out of yourself. That's a thinker. Uh-huh. That's a thinker. No. <laughs> no. So, skipping over the JFK assassination. What? what but why? <laughs> oh, because that. But I that, have so many. But um, I. That's a whole uh, but, other episode. Magic bullet. Which we might do like a month of conspiracy themed episodes. If that is something that interests you, let us know. Going from that, we are led into Indochina. The first Indochina war saw the country divided into two parts, which were North Vietnam and South Vietnam. In 1954... The haves were ruled by separate regimes and scheduled elections to reunite the country under a unified government. But Americans were nervous because dirty commies, those dirty, dirty commies, seemed poised to win. So the U.S. backed non-communists because, you know, they were non-communist South Vietnam. That was really their qualifying factor. That was it. (laughs) Yep. And they also supported Ngo Dinh Dinh who refused to hold elections, even though he'd kind of said he was going to do that. I mean, he's not a communist. So we like him better. But in 1959, the Viet Cong, who were guerrilla fighters from the north, were coming south pretty forcefully, making their presence known. And things continued to not be so awesome for South Vietnam. 
So the State Department says by 1963, Dam's rule had so deteriorated that he was overthrown and assassinated by several of his generals with the tacit approval of the Kennedy administration. Three weeks later, U.S. President John F. Kennedy was also assassinated. I'm sure with a tacit approval of the Vietnamese. In the State Department. Maybe. No, no, bring it back. Stop it. Stop Mm -hmm. it. Stop. We mustn't. We mustn't. And so the war continued under new leadership in both countries. So while Kennedy had increased advisory presence in South Vietnam, now we had Lyndon B. Johnson as the head. People talk a lot of shit about LBJ. There's another Texan in this episode. I have such a fondness for him, and I know that that is a very weird thing to say because I am such a crazy liberal hippie, and he would have... Are you kidding me? He created the Great Society. I know. (laughs) But people like want to want to remember him so much differently than I think he actually was. His legacy is not his biography. Let's just say that. Is it anyone's? <laughs> Kennedy had instituted nation building programs. Again, sound familiar? And he believed that this would help, you know, while they were under new leadership and for all of three weeks he had this plan and of course Johnson continued it when he ascended to the presidency. And the main US interest in the area in a military capacity at the time, was protecting free navigation of international waters. By 1964, LBJ was pretty certain that escalation might be necessary. Also sounds familiar. Another abbreviated president. (laughs) True, initials. Like FDR, LBJ knew something was coming. But he didn't know what, and he didn't know when, and he didn't know how many. Or did he? (gasps) So the U.S. Navy had stationed two destroyers, the Maddox and the Turner Joy, in the Gulf of Tonkin to maintain free trade in international waters. Actually, that's another repeat. And one of the boats reported that there had been an attack by the North Vietnamese patrol boats on August 2nd of 1964. And LBJ said, how dare you? Now, here's what really happened. The Maddox fired first. Three rounds to ward off the commie boats. However, this little detail, this little, you know, Han shot first detail. That's exactly what this is. Was never reported to the Johnson administration. But the Vietnamese did, in fairness, fight back. Yes, we had one bullet hole. There was more than just one bullet hole. No, no, that's from the NSA report that I read. Right, but McNamara said he, like, picked up bullets from... The boat. Uh-huh. You, you telling me you're going to believe Robbie Strange McNamara over the NSA report? There was one bullet hole in the Maddox. Yes, to be fair, they did fight back after we shot at them. And six Vietnamese men were killed during the skirmish. There were no injuries to any Americans. So this was told to Johnson. And he was like, what the hell? Oh, no. This is what I've been waiting for. And not in a good way. And then a report came from Naval Intelligence stating that they had intercepted this communique from the North Vietnamese. Just somewhere, though, in North Vietnam. Maybe. Sort of. It sounded like Vietnamese. We have received the orders. We are at high speed to get together with enemy following launched torpedoes. That's confusing. Yes, it is. This is, like, confirming that there was action to, like, pursuant action, like that they were trying to catch up with the enemy, that they knew the location of the enemy. And maybe they fired torpedoes. But who was the enemy? 
Like, are they calling the U.S. the enemy before shots have ever been fired between the two of them? Is this about the South Vietnamese? Is this unrelated? But even with all these questions and these questions being present at the time, they took this as evidence. So Johnson sent out a message to North Vietnam saying that more unprovoked actions would entail grave consequences. This is like what Mexico did to the United States. Oh, and as, just as a note here, this was the first diplomatic message ever sent from the United States to North Vietnam. Back off. No, seriously, you guys, seriously. Public announcement was issued on August 3rd from the Johnson administration. U.S. forces, if attacked in international waters, would attack with force, not just to drive off, but to destroy. Them as serious words. The the line has been drawn in the sand, Jacob. But even with that line being drawn, people thought Johnson was being a coward by not fighting, not starting a war, basically, because of this one incident. Even Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, who has an amazing documentary, The Fog of War. Right. He is the subject of that documentary, and it's one of my favorites of all time. But he even said that people thought Johnson was a coward for not responding to that first attack. And Johnson's like, seems like a bit of a thing we could get into, boys. I don't know about all that. But then, but then, the other shoe drops on August the 4th. Torpedoes are launched at the Turner Joy. Now, maybe? They were launched, maybe. Maybe? None hit. Maybe? It's very questionable, and it's very hmm, foggy. It's very the fog of war from the very beginning with this attack. James Stockdale, a Navy pilot who had the, quote, best seat in the house to detect boats, said that he saw nothing. Later, he wrote that no boat wakes, no ricochets off boats, no boats, no boat impact, no torpedo wakes, nothing but Black Sea and American firepower were visible. Just like we'd like it. Oh, shit, you're right. That's like a bad guy line. So John J. Herrick, who was the commander of the Maddox, radioed, saying that he was doubtful of many aspects of the attack. And in the documentary, you can hear Johnson and McNamara discussing this. And Johnson says, where are these torpedoes coming from? Uh, We don't know. Presumably from these unidentified craft, McNamara answers. Now, there were sonar soundings that might have indicated that a torpedo might have been detected. Maybe. Well, what did they detect? Well, on radar, they saw a blip, and then they saw a sharp turn indicated. Now, this is a recognizable pattern that you would see if a torpedo were launched from a ship. They would drop the torpedo and then get out of dodge. However, this little blip scene occurred 6,000 yards away from the Maddox. Now, normally, torpedo range was about 1,000 yards away. So it's a bit like trying from half court if this actually happened. And then they could never get another fix on this craft. On sonar, there was a noise spike, but it was not reported as a torpedo at the time. And no one on sonar directed any torpedoes all night. So it was all the radar guy. McNamara says... We spent 10 hours that day trying to find out what the hell had happened. Admiral Sharp said that apparently there had been about nine torpedoes in the water. All of them had just missed. Oh, wait a minute now. I'm not so sure about that number of engaged. 
these are quotes from the actual radio recordings that were going back and forth between Washington and the Gulf of Tonkin as they were trying to ascertain whether or not they had been attacked, which seems to me that it should be pretty black and white. Okay, and then 97 minutes later, Admiral Sharp said that many of the reported contacts with the torpedoes fired appeared doubtful. He blamed freak weather effects on radar and overeager sonar men that may have accounted for many of the reports. But then McNamara asked him, so you're pretty sure there was a torpedo attack? And Sharp says, oh, no doubt about that, I think. And just hearing this recording is astounding because you can just hear the doubt in his voice. It's this, oh, yeah, totally. No, it happened. Fuck, did it happen? You can just hear him going, I, oh, I can't say for 100% for sure. So this incident was brought to Johnson. And they were like, look, it happened again. You said, if this happens again, we're going to war. In this report that is initially made to LBJ, there is a s- signal intelligence intercept. It is reported as a Vietnamese after-action report. An unidentified North Vietnamese naval authority had intercepted, reporting that the DRV had shot down two planes in the battle area and that we sacrificed two ships and all the rest are okay. It added that the enemy ship could have also been damaged. That doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to fit. And again, we have this ambiguous enemy. And at the time, they have lots of enemies. And we're assuming it's us because it's that total like 14-year-old, like, oh, no, they're definitely looking at me. They're definitely talking about me. It's Mean Girls history at its worst. And so with that signet evidence and with the second attack, Johnson had to follow through. Yes. So there were five pieces of evidence that were brought. And it's like, we saw some lights. No, really. Like they, They're like, we saw some lights. And we have this note that we intercepted in class from the guy who sits behind you. And we think it's about you. And Admiral Sharp said, no doubt about that. I think. And so Johnson was very much under the gun and this intelligence report was really the key part of it this was the 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 hard evidence i guess so with this information johnson went to congress he said he wouldn't go to war without their support and johnson asked congress to defend the u.s forces in southeast asia and the state department says congress supported the resolution with the assumption that the president would return and seek their support before engaging additional escalations of war And this is known as the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. And it was passed with only two dissenting votes. This vote led to Operation Rolling Thunder. Don't you like the smell of napalm in the morning? Oh, Robert Duvall, you rascal. But that's what it was. It was. It was an extreme bombing raid. And it began on February 13th and ended in the spring. And they believed that if they just kind of bullied Hanoi long enough, they would weaken and realize that we were awesome and just stop. That didn't work out so well. Johnson later said, when we got through with all the firing, we concluded maybe they hadn't fired at all. And so LBJ was very conflicted about this because as evidence kept coming out, that question of whether that second Tonkin attack had actually been an attack became more and more clear that maybe it hadn't been. And I think Johnson was in a really difficult place because he never planned to be a wartime president, as George W. Bush famously said. He never planned to be a president. 
so yes, he'd never wanted to be president or never expected to be president in 1963. And this is a huge pile of dog shit that he's just stepped in. I don't think it's set well with him. Lady Bird said that she was worried about LBJ becoming depressed. Said on her, in her audio diary. Apparently everyone kept audio diaries. Everyone did. And they're fabulous. I think the fear that haunts him is sort of a Harding complex. So she's referring to Harding's teapot dome scandal, which was this huge scandal occurring in 1921 about the Secretary of Interior, Albert Bacon Fall, who basically got bribed and gave away land in the teapot dome. It wasn't actually tea (laughs) for oil drilling. And before Watergate, you know, everything now is like something gate. Yes. They're clever. Then everything was teapot dome scandal because as it was called before the Watergate scandal, the greatest and most sensational scandal in the history of American politics. It sounds so proper though. It's not real tea. (laughs) So I have to say that I think a bacon fall sounds lovely. It's like a, a snowfall with salt and pork part. And smoke. But a month later, Lady Bird confided that she heard her husband telling Vice President Hubert H. Humphrey I'm not temperamentally equipped to be commander-in-chief because of his emotional involvement with every decision that could cost an American life. In fact, he asked at one point to be awakened in the night whenever American was killed in Vietnam. And that's just not how we think of Johnson. It really isn't. This was a real heavy-as-the-head moment, I think. At one point, Johnson told McNamara, I don't believe they're ever going to quit. And he was kind of right. And so for the last several decades the question of whether the gulf of tonkin incident was a false flag has been swimming around conspiracy theorists and books and pamphlets and etc and we never knew the full answer right we were unaware and i think this might be why we get the biography of johnson that we get this was like perceived as something that he did like, he ordered them to say that it was this way so that he could start this war. He was a hawk. But he's really a dove. It's just really true. However, there was a report published by the National Security Agency in their classified journal, the Cryptologic Quarterly, in early 2001. However, the documents published there were not declassified until December 1st of 2005. Officials of the NSA were fearful that the Declassification might prompt uncomfortable comparisons with the flawed intelligence used to justify the war in Iraq. The glaring light of publicity encouraged the agency's leaders to finally approve the declassification of these documents. And in these documents, it's argued that officials mishandled signal intelligence concerning the events of August 4th and provided top-level officials with skewed intelligence supporting claims of an August 4th attack. The overwhelming body of reports, if used, would have told the story that no attack occurred. Yeah, people had been questioning the signal intelligence, starting with Truth is the First Casualty, published in 1969 by Joseph Golden. And it seems there's something to all of those allegations, because very early on in this monster document from the NSA, they say, first of all, it's not that there's a different story as to what happened. It's that nothing happened. And they say that there were instances in which specious supporting signal intelligence 
evidence was inserted into NSA summary report reports issued shortly after the Gulf of Tonkin incident. This signal intelligence was not manufactured. Instead, it consisted of fragments of legitimate intercept lifted out of its context and inserted into the summary reports to support the contention of a premeditated North Vietnamese attack on the 4th of August. The sources of these fragments were not even referenced in the summaries. It took extensive research before the original reports containing these items could be identified. It reminds me of what Robert Stennett did in The Day of Deceit. Just kind of took some fragments and kind of pieced it together just to support his claim. This would not get you through freshman English, and I don't like it a bit. Cite your sources. Do it right. Take a research methods class. The Navy would misconstrue the signal intelligence for the duration of the Vietnam War. Johnson said he would have never gone to war without that signal intelligence. It's now felt that what the radar men saw was the high-speed returns of the rudders reflecting the turbulence of the propellers. So their own boats. They saw their own boats. But they believed that they saw the North Vietnamese coming to attack them and reported that to the president. Yeah, and LBJ authorized the attack on the assumption that it had happened. And his belief that it was a conscious decision on the part of the Vietnamese to escalate the conflict and an indication that they would not stop short of winning. McNamara goes on to say, years later, with the benefit of hindsight, it didn't happen. Our judgment was wrong. We had in our minds a mindset that led to the action, and it carried such a heavy cost. We see incorrectly, or we see half of the story at times. Belief and seeing are both often wrong. And that's so true. And we can see that through the history and what we've discussed in today's episode. We can see that the way that the story is presented matters. Who knew what when is a powerful question that we ask over and over and over again, as long as there are conflicting opinions and as long as people's lives are at stake. And we come to those points where people are presenting arguments and not facts. We come to a point where we believe that the people in charge of our nation should be informed of all of the facts all of the time. And that if they say they're not, they're just lying. And we come to places where people are selling us the war. With illustrations. And we see that a reluctant president might be pushed by skewed stories that make him do things that he might not otherwise do. Right, by the stories that people wanted to see. Stories of what they wanted him to believe. And the thing is... The thing that's really frightening is that sometimes we can see behind the story or we can see beyond it and we can start to question the official narrative. And questioning is a good thing. But sometimes questioning just leads to more questions. And more questions. And belief and trust and faith erode in the face of those questions. And sometimes the questions and the questioning is justified and righteous and it serves your fellow man. Has a valuable purpose. And sometimes 
it can lead to a very dark and maddening place where nothing makes sense anymore. And it feels like the world is coming to get you. And that's not just a story. We'll tell you more about that next week. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.